0: let me change the mentality for all the owners listening. You don't want a cold call from the guy three times a day or whatever it is like, but you want him to call you when he's got that hot lead? How does that work? Let me tell you how that works out for you. It doesn't. You know who that broker's going to call when he finally digs up that good? He's going to call the owner who was nice to him. He's going to call the owner who allowed him to take him to breakfast. He's going to call the owner who's like, hey, listen, I don't have anything. I know you call me a lot. Keep doing it. Because the owner is smart enough to realize, hey, this guy calls me once a month maybe he has the same crappy interest generator. Like, what are your plans, right? That's bad interest generator, you know? <laughs> but I know that that's going to take five minutes, 12 times a year, 16 minutes. That's one hour of my life. 10 years in a row, that's 10 hours of my life. But over the next 10 years, if this guy stays in the business and he sells me one deal, I'm going to make millions on it. And let me tell you, 10 hours to make a million dollars, that's $100,000 an hour. Is that a good return on your time? That's Fuck pretty you, good. That's, that's good pretty good. Time. I would take Don't that. Don't ever ever, ever hang up on a cold-collar broker Yeah. because you never know who's going to be the great ones.
1: Welcome to The Fort Podcast. I'm Chris Powers. And on this show, I talk to some of the most fascinating minds in business and discuss important topics in the worlds of real estate, entrepreneurship, investing, and more. To learn more, visit thefortpod.com. That's thefortpod.com. Man, did I just have an incredible episode with Kyle Matthews. Kyle is unbelievably inspiring. We talk a lot about how Kyle got started in the business um, early on as a broker and really an account of what it was like to be a broker from 08 to call it 2010 and how he used that time to really launch his career. He took advantage of an opportunity, which was a down market. We talked about the reason why he decided to leave and start Matthews which has now grown into one of the largest brokerage companies in America. They've already completed over $43 billion worth of transactions. We talk about their culture and how they're building it and how they're different. And a lot of where that comes from is how Kyle grew up and the family he grew up in. Ever since Kyle was born, all he thought about was winning. And he's built a winning team at Matthews. And so we just talk about this remarkable commercial real estate story. And I think you'll enjoy it as much as I did. If you're in the real estate business, then you know that you have to make offering memorandums, investor reporting, pitch decks. And I came across this awesome company called Better Pitch. They're a design firm specializing in pitch deck creation for real estate acquisition, management, and disposition. So if you're tired of moonlighting as a graphic designer when you should be focused on finding capital and penciling deals, look no further than Better Pitch. From acquisitions to dispositions, Better Pitch decks are designed to help you raise more money quicker by effectively communicating the key points of your deal without breaking the bank. Unlike most agencies who may delegate your work to inexperienced interns and analysts, you'll work directly with one dedicated pitch deck designer to craft your presentation from scratch to perfection. Here's the best part. Better Pitch is offering Fort Podcast subscribers their services risk-free. That's right. They'll design your deck for a small refundable deposit. If you love it, payment is made up upon completion. If you're not satisfied, move along risk free. Ready to get your pitch deck working for you? Book a call today at betterpitch.com. Are you looking for a career in real estate? Fort Capital's purpose is to create a place that attracts the most talented individuals and provide them an environment to be their absolute best. I can honestly say they are successfully achieving their purpose. The team at Ford is unbelievably talented and I would argue the best in the business. They also offer some of the best benefits, including the opportunity to participate in deals, early Fridays, generous PTO, and excellent health benefits. If you're interested in joining the team, visit wwwfortcapitallpcom backslash careers. All right, y'all, get your popcorn ready. I've been chatting with Kyle for the last hour and today's going to be great. I met Kyle in 2019 in LA. We really haven't chatted a whole lot since then, but we've been chatting the last hour and today's going to be good. So Kyle, welcome. Thanks for having me. I've been pumped. I've been really researching the last couple of days, just kind of what you're up to and you have a really unique story. So let's kind of just start there. How did you kind of grow up, and then how did you get to founding Matthews, where you are today? Well, yeah,
0: I'll tell you my story because I I know it will provide better context for, I'm sure, questions that come later. But, uh, you know, I grew up in the Matthews family, the Matthews football family for the football fans out there. So my dad's Clay Matthews. He was a linebacker in the NFL for 19 years, you know, uncle's Bruce Matthews, uh, Hall of Fame offensive lineman for 19 years in the NFL. My grandfather played in the NFL. I got into brokerage and I'll, I'll tell that story in a second. And then, you know, I had brothers uh who played in the NFL at very high levels. I have cousins still in the NFL. What happened, dude? Well, I got all the uh good looks and intelligence. And so, you know, <laughs> no, I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean compared to my brothers, that is true. I okay. just want to be clear. It's uh this it was just a blessing. And so, you know, growing up in that world and that life, I moved around a lot. I had a very unique experience where and I've asked my parents why they did that and, and why they did this is we moved every six months. So during the season, my dad played for the Cleveland Browns, go Browns from until I was from I was born until I was about thirteen. okay, and he played there for sixteen years. And then the last uh, three or four years of his career, he he had played in the Atlanta Falcons. So from August to late December, I would live in Cleveland and then at the very end, Atlanta. And then as soon as the last game was over, even if they went to the playoffs, we would move back to LA. We'd kind of move into the same house and many times move to the same school. But so you can imagine like every six months I was getting out of a school and going back to a school and I loved it. It was always exciting. Every six months, it was kind of a change of scenery. I had two very unique friend groups. And then when I went to Atlanta, third friend group, sometimes I get dropped into a new school and that was always, <laughs> uh, you know, it's like I, I did, there were five or six like new school experiences. And, you know, fast forward to getting into brokerage and sales, I do, I know that helped me develop the ability to, you know, develop emotional intelligence. You know, you're just trying to fit in right away, but, uh, but yeah, definitely some sales skills because you got to sell them on why you shouldn't get your ass kicked. You know, when I moved from LA to Georgia in 1993, and it was a little bit of a culture shock at the time. So grew up in that family and uh, there was a lot of spotlight. Uh, you know, I'd say from a young age, I, I was always very acutely aware that, to some degree what i said or what i did you know people were watching or people were listening maybe a little more intently to a 10-year-old version of me than maybe you know someone else and so you know there were just so many blessings that i received there's so there's just so many development advantages i in my opinion i had because of that experience that reality you know and so my dad retired when i was a sophomore in high school and so, you know, imagine having your dad playing football when you're in high school. It was, you know, it was a trip and then moved out to LA full time. So I went and played football in high school. I was fortunate enough to get invited to come play at USC in um, 2000 was when I graduated high school. And I then went to to SC and play football in my first year. We weren't that good. And they made a coaching change and hired a guy named Pete Carroll, if you know that name. And, and, <laughs> and, uh, and it just like, it was just it was like a light got turned on, you know, a fire got lit and he came in and had so much energy and so much enthusiasm. You know, people describe him as a player's coach. He was, but he was not a pushover man. We had, they had a killer coaching staff, Norm Chow. Coach, Coach Ogeron, if you coach, Coach O. He was there. We had incredible coaching staff and then he just started bringing in dudes, man. he brained in dogs and just bodies and we got really good really fast. And by the end of my my time um, on the team as a senior, it was 2003, 2004, we won a national championship, which was an incredible experience. We could, you know, we could dive into that. And so I'll tell a story I've told this before, but it's always funny is, um, you know, one of the good and the bad things about going to a school like SC at that level is I was a safety and I show up and, you know, I think because I grew up in a family that had a very, very, very high level athletes, much better than myself, You know, there's humility. You always know there's someone bigger, stronger, faster. And not everybody who goes to SC knows that until they get there. I kind of knew that going in. But, you know, I felt good about what I brought to the table. You know, I'm not going to say, you know, at the time, you know, I didn't feel confident. And I remember like one of our first padded practices, you know, I'm in in, like a a drill line and I didn't even see the play. I just heard it. I heard like the thump, like, like, I'm like, what was that? You know, you see like a body flying, man, who was that? Like, yes, yeah, uh, that's Troy Polamalu. Oh yeah. And I go, oh man, like you could just tell, like I flashes, like he's good. Like what position did you play? Plays your position. <laughs> I was like, oh shit. <laughs> All right. Like, and it was, I think it was like 72 hours into my career. I was like, man, in, into my time at SC, I was like, I might need to find something else to do with my life, yeah. you know? <laughs> and, uh, I love football. I love the experience. I gave everything I had when I was there, you know, showed up and did every workout and went hard. And. You know, eventually I'd like to think I delivered more hits than I took. But even very, very early on in my collegiate career, I was like, you know what, I probably am gonna need to find a career. Like I'm the NFL, yes, that was my dad's destiny, but that probably isn't mine. And that's okay. I think growing up in that family, yeah, you get to see and you get to experience a lot of the benefits, okay, the fame, the the, the ropes that get open, the doors that are open. But more than anything, you get the benefit of seeing the the underbelly, the nasty parts of being in some way affiliated with a relatively famous father or whatever brother, and you see the toll it takes on their bodies. And so I, what would it be like after games? I mean, he'd be he'd be hurt. He'd be. And my dad's a freak. Like he played 19 years, the most games ever in the history of the NFL at linebacker. I don't, I don't think that's been broken. Again, I'm not like 278 NFL games in addition to college, in addition to high school. So like, I, you know, count that up and all he ever had was like a broken arm and a broken ankle. Like he's made of like a different steel, my old man, you know, (laughs) and my uncle too, like he has the most games ever in the history of the NFL as an offensive lineman. God dang. So like, you know, they're just built differently, but you know, it takes a toll physically, but how about this? How about mentally? How about, you know, my dad picking me up from soccer practice and like, there's no, so. this is like the late eighties and early nineties, no social media, there's no satellite. So you turn on the radio and like you turn on sports talk radio and I'm sitting there, I'm 12 years old and there's someone going off, just ripping your father on the, on the radio. Like, oh, you know, Clay Matthews, he's old. They should cut his bum ass. Like, <laughs> and I'm sitting there like, or, you know, and this works both ways. It's 1993. I'm in, you know, whatever, sixth grade, fifth grade no, this would have been 89. So maybe I'm in like second grade. And, you know, a couple of weeks before my dad made a mistake in a game. He was a very high level player, but he made a mistake. And like, I got kids at the school, like, man, your dad, my dad said this about your dad. And you're like, all right, fine. And then three, three weeks later, they're in the divisional championship game against the bills. And it's the last play of the game on the five yard line. Jim Kelly drops back, throws to Thurman Thomas. My dad picks it off to win the game and go to the AFC championship. And then it just flips and everybody's your buddy and everyone's like super fired up. Then the, the radio's talking about what a hero. And it, it kind of like, not just numbs you to what everyone outside of your like real family and close friends say. And, and it helps, I think in many ways, running a company or achieving success in whatever you choose to do. But you kind of, it just, it teaches you a very valuable lesson is like, don't get too high, don't get too low. yeah, And don't look for value and affirmation from the masses because you're never going to get
1: it. Well, we were just talking about that. So everything you just said, you imagine 1993, you're on a radio show, seeing public opinion shift that quick. Yeah, it's brutal. And now the world has given us the opportunity to shift yeah. our opinion every two mm-hmm. seconds. And you have kind of a strong opinion about that. Let's just go down that just for a little bit. Social media, how you think about the world today with that in the mix.
0: I've been wrong about social media. So I'm not probably the best person to, to comment on. It. I remember... I was in college. I was dating my now wife, and she was like, "Yo, check out this website." And I was like, "What is this?" She's like, "Oh, it's this website. You could post photos of your life, and like people can like them and connect all these people." I was like, "That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Who would want, who, who would want to do that? Like, that's so intrusive." She's like, "No, it's this is big." I was like, "You are so wrong." Like, What's the name of that website? Facebook. Yeah, never hear that again. So, like, I don't know if I don't know if like there's really value to my opinion. I just think social media at a personal level is very dangerous, generally speaking, destructive. And if you use social media as like basically a living Christmas card, it works like, oh, I want to keep people in touch with like how the kids are growing up and that's fine. Like, but nobody really has that discipline. Right. And so from a personal level, it could be really, really tough on people mentally and their self image, how they feel about how they're doing, whether it's like physically, uh, professionally, financially, because even though you know it, you don't know, like you, you lose sight of the fact that you're looking at everyone's curated images of their life and it's not real. And you, you say that to yourself, but you don't actually, like, it doesn't show up. You just constantly like, man, like I suck. Right. Yeah, And I'm not close enough deals. I'm not making enough money. Or how about this? Like I'm not skinny enough. I don't look good enough. And I just think that generally speaking, people don't have social media are much happier. Yeah. I don't know if like reports say that, but I'm, if I had to guess, that's a, that's a thing. So real quick, I did want to finish the question about like, finish it. I'm at SC careers. Not, so I wanted to get into real estate. I always want to get my real estate. My dad owned one building, an apartment building, and uh, he had bought it from my grandfather. So that's, that's how we got into real estate. We would go to the building because I was the oldest son. So I got all the, the bad jobs, right? It's like, Hey, we got to wake up early. We got to go to the building. We got to turn a unit. We got to collect some rent we got to get the laundry income. And I would go to this building, you know, and as I was coming of age, I was like, Hey, what is this? And he's like, that's a apartment building. And it's like, you know, it's 20 units in LA. I was like, man, so what does it do? He's like, well, people live here and they pay me rent. I was like, wait, so they live here and they just, they have to give you money every month. And he's like, yeah. I was like, man, that's so cool. (laughs) I was like, I want to do that. How do I do that? So, uh, coming out of college, I knew I wanted to get into real estate. I didn't have any money and I really didn't have any real estate skills. I wasn't a real estate finance major. I didn't do internships in real estate in that sense. And so brokerage was my path. And and that's how I got into brokerage right out of college, you know, and
1: that's led to me being here today. All right. Well, we're going to unpack all that, but there's one thing you said in there that I've written down. You said Pete Carroll showed up and like the team turned around pretty quickly. And then we've been talking and we're going to talk a lot about your transition from broker to leader. But what did you learn from Pete Carroll? That he could come into a call it an average football team and turn it around, it's clearly a leadership skill yeah. that he brought. What did he bring that's kind of stuck with you?
0: Yeah, uh, so many things. I mean, there's so many layers is uh, unbeknownst to me at the time, I was getting a first-hand education, a first-hand view into how to build and run and ultimately sustain an incredibly high performance team or company, again, you know, that yeah. version as team, but have a great time doing it. Yeah. I would say football at that time. And even today, like Nick Saban, you look at the sustained, sustained success at Alabama, but, you know, Nick's intense. He was one of my dad's coaches for the Browns to coordinator. So, and like, there are times I'm watching Alabama play and they win a lot of games, but I'm like, I don't know if they look like they're having a great time. For whatever reason at SC, we were able to win just as many games, just as many championships. But like we had such a good time and that was all due to Pete and how he approached it. So his, the foundation at SC was competition. Yeah, Iron sharpens iron, right? Yeah, And so he would bring, he would say, he would tell us, he would say, I'm going to go out and recruit the absolute best athletes around the country. And he was very good at that. So He was just a great salesperson. He was, he had a very clear vision. He communicated that vision to the, to the recruits and said, this is what we are doing. Here's the value to you. And here's how it's going to put you in a position to be successful, ultimately likely get drafted and high to the NFL, which, which many, many, many of my teammates did. And you know what he did, dude, I'll never forget his first like recruiting class. He sat the whole existing team down because the recruits sign in the spring, but they don't really show up till the summer to start working out. So it was like start of spring ball. The recruiting season had just finished. We had just signed this, like the number one class. And it was the first time SC. And he sat the whole team down. And he said, hey guys, we had a great signing day. And I want you to see who's coming in to take your jobs. And we had to sit there and we had to watch these guys highlights as a team. (laughs) There were some good players, man. And you're sitting there and you're like, damn. And like, it's fight or flight. You know, we, had some, we had some guys on the team who are like, he's recruiting my replacements, I'm out of here. And they transfer out, and, get, and Pete's attitude was get them out. They're yeah. soft, the marshmallows, mentally weak human beings we do not want here. Yeah. Get them out of here. They will break in the fourth quarter. They will forget their assignment. They'll, they'll, they'll fake it, they'll do something. They will expose us late in a big game. If just having someone come in at their position Basically causes them to want to transfer out. Get them the fuck out of here.
1: Yeah. Right? Can I say that? Yeah. You All can right, say so, whatever you want. So,
0: <laughs> but like the actual like we call full-time savages, they would sit there and be like, bring this punk ass in here. Like, let's <laughs> go. Like, and and you know what? And it drove, it drove those that stayed to get better. And I'll speak for myself, whatever the best version of myself as a player, which wasn't enough to start there, and that's okay. But I'm telling you, it drove me to be the absolute best version of myself. Like I trained as hard as I possibly could. I lifted as hard, I, I worked out as hard, I watched film. Again, God made me never to be as good at football as Troy Polomalu. And as hard as that was for me to come to that, like it was like, I'll find something else to do. And I, I think I was able to apply a lot of this mentality lessons into brokerage and that, that allowed me to get going. But so the the first thing Pete did was he just he brought that like competitive mindset. Like, not only are we gonna do this, if you're the type of player we want, if you're the type of mentality we want, you're gonna want this because you're gonna want these guys to push to push you. And what we found is as these guys were coming in, as these five stars, just absolute studs were coming in, practice started getting like ones versus ones, twos versus twos. That was another thing. We did a lot of full pad practice. And then he would, a lot of times in college programs, either before or probably after they, they do like the starting offensive unit versus like scout team. yeah. And then the starting defense versus the scout team offense at SC, he goes, no, we're going ones versus ones every day, full pads. And he's, it's competition. He would create scenarios, of the 10, the five and the two yard line. And then we would rank him and whichever unit won, the other unit had to like, we had to do up downs. We had to do barrel. Like it was intense. And so the, The practices got so hardcore. Like, and you, as the talent elevated throughout my time there, you were going against guys in practice that, by the time the game came on Saturday, it was easy. Like, there's no way that guy across the line at, at UCLA is nearly as good as the left tackle and pass rushing against or the receiver I'm covering or the running back I'm trying to beat for a sack in practice, like. That punk ass player in that powder blue uniform, like that, that's not going like, to, and that's why we smashed them every year, you know? So, you know, that's just how we got after it. And then, so the games almost became easier and then we started smoking people. And so it created this like highly competitive environment. And a lot of times I think where the mistake is made in leadership that I got to see Pete do was they create this high pressure, high stress environment. And then there's never a release. Yeah, And you win a lot, but you don't either necessarily enjoy it or sometimes there's like an implosion. There's like this, it's just everyone mentally breaks. What Pete did was he had a very good, he understood human beings so well. I don't know if that's a skill you can learn. I think Pete just had it and he was born with it. And I don't know if anyone's ever met Pete Carroll and said, man, I don't like that guy. Like you don't like him because he beat your team. But I don't think if you actually met him, you'd like he's such a likable guy. And so- he knew exactly that moment up until the point where like, we were like, we were a little too stressed. Like it was right, you know, the week preparing for the the national championship when everyone's stressed and it's the biggest game of your life and it's the, And you know, the, the rings on the line and the, the tro- and then all of a sudden like Snoop Dogg would show up to practice <laughs> and he would like, you know, he'd play, he'd practice with his entire practice or like, I remember one time he like, he was like, yo guys, Hey, just don't worry about it. Like, I know this sounds weird. We got a guy trying out. He's a punter. We're just looking for some help on the kicking team. And, you know, I've already, Mike, Mike, our punters, I've already talked to Mike. He's cool with, it. he understands like, there's just, you know, we're just looking to always get better. He's like, so he's over there and we look and there's this guy and he's in, you know, a helmet, full pads. He has a visor on. So you're already like, wait, why is a punter wearing a visor? <laughs> and his body is just like, his body's like, well, I guess he's a punter, but God, he doesn't look like an athlete, like whatever and we're we're doing our drills the drills and then at the end of practice like all right he, he's going to take some he's going to do some punts and i'm on like punt pro team i'm on like punt protection team and i'm like blocking for this guy and his punts are horrible he's like hey we're going to try him out and like we're all sitting like man what is going on like this is such a waste of time this guy is not going to make the team like what what's happening <laughs> so then he's like all right but hey i want live drill all right we're going to punt he's going to return it i want you guys to go down and tackle him and then i'm on it's a punt pro and then you you release and you go and you run down the field and you look to smash somebody So they get the ball. This guy catches. He can't even catch it. He's running. And I'm running down. We're running down, like whack, you know, just like smashing this guy. And then he's like, all right, let's do it again. Let's do it again. And we're like, this guy sucks, man. (laughs) And we did three or four of them. And all of a sudden, it's like Pete blows whistle. like, all right, hey, practice over. Come on up. I want to give you. He's like, hey, you know, Will, look. And this guy's sitting kind of on the outside. He's like, hey, man, loved having you out here, but hey, I don't think it's gonna work out. And he takes his helmet off. It's Will Ferrell, and, and he's like, "You know what? F you, Coach. I don't even want to be." And we just are like dying. And this is like, from what I can remember, this is like bowl practice week. This is the most stressful time of the year. Everything you've done for this for the entire season is leading up to this moment to win the Rose Bowl or win the Natty. And this is how he Pete was so good at like just breaking that. We're like, we're dying laughing, and then it's like four days before the biggest game of our life. And so you asked the question, "What was it about Pete that he did so well?" and I want to make sure I answer that question. He did two things. He set the table and set the tone and the foundation of the entire program was we are going to compete at all times. We will never stop getting better. If you can't handle the pressure, if you can't handle, if you want to go somewhere to like kind of have a nice little career, I'll take it to brokerage. You want to go do a couple deals, go work at another company. You come here to be the absolute best, whatever you can be Whatever we can get out of, whatever last drop of juice we can squeeze out of the orange that is you physically, mentally, emotionally, like that's why you come to SC at, yep. the, at that time. And hopefully now again with uh, Link O'Reilly, that's why you come to Matthews. I love it. And then you celebrate. And then you celebrate and you act like an absolute clown and you have a great time. You celebrate your success. You celebrate your teammate's success. That's a big thing. I remember one time I was in a scrimmage real quick and then we move on. I was close to making a big play, which, you know, selfish, <laughs> selfishly, I want to make a play and a teammate beat me to the, to the tackle for a loss. I was happy for my teammates. One of my closest buddies, but I, something about my body language. It just like, I was frustrated. I didn't get there. And like the play, he get over it right now. And he grabs my face mask and he's like, Hey, you need to be able to be happy for your teammates. And uh, he's like, you need to show enthusiasm. And I said, I know, no, no, I know. I'm happy, but like, man, I wanted to get there. And I said, it's hard to be enthusiastic when I don't make the play. And he goes, well, false enthusiasm is better than no enthusiasm. And I just like, he's right. Like, even if there's a time where your teammate gets to the play before you or an agent at the same company gets a listing before you, even if you truly don't feel it, like just make them think you do. And you'll be shocked at how quickly you will be like, you know what, actually, like, I am happy. I'm happy, even though I want to be the number one agent, I'm happy that they are in that business. I call it sibling rivalry. I want all my siblings to, to be successful. I just want to be a little more successful. I can relate
1: to that so much. Talking about treating others and somebody once said to me, you know, why don't you compliment that person or whatever? And in my head, it was like, cause I don't really mean it. I would, that would be being fake. It was like a moral justification yeah. to me. And they go, well, how's that strategy working out for you? hundred percent. And I was like, not very good. And they were like, why don't you just fake? compliment that person and just see what happens you compliment them you see them light up you see their energy you and it actually about yourself correct yeah you,
0: and then all of a sudden you know you track more flies with honey than shit right that's And so mm. my dad used to say that he my dad didn't ever curse something i gotta get better at but uh <laughs> i think he would say you track more flies with honey than you know poop or whatever but like it never left me it's like okay i talk a lot about like it's like jordan michael jordan when he got in the league he just want you know just go after Larry Bird and magic. You just want to beat him. And I think a lot of that is being young. Like I'm guessing it was when you were younger in your career, yep. you you hadn't yet achieved that, the heights you had or, and Jordan hadn't become the goat yet. But eventually what he found out is like, you can want to be better than someone. You could want to compete to beat their ass and to win championships. But that in no way should ever rob you or take away your ability to have massive appreciation for their skill. Yep. As well as gratitude that they exist, it forces you to get better. So when I was a young agent, I'd look at agents that were more accomplished or more successful. Like, you know, friend, this guy, like. <laughs> but as I came up, I realized first of all, they were very good for a reason. They were good. Like their their skills, their their communication value, communicating value of rep, their their enthusiasm, their ability to overcome objections, like their commit to the grind, like what I say, full time savages. Like they were full time. And first of all, I eventually was like, you know what? I just can't hate on this guy. Like or gal is like, he's a stud, like credit to you. But then I realized that I needed those boogeymen. I needed them out there because if they weren't there, like what gets me up in the morning, not every day can I just rely on my natural, I'm just fired up to be here. Like there are some days you need, you need that. You need someone to like say, no, like that person's out there and they're out there doing it. So you got to do it too. And eventually I I had gratitude for those people being in my life as competitors. Cause I knew that ultimately not only would I be a better version of myself, I would achieve more success. I would do better in my career because they existed. And then you end up wanting to be around those people and you develop actual close personal relationships and you get to know them. And more often than not, you actually realize they're successful, you're successful because from a personality and mindset, you have tremendous amounts in common and then you develop genuine friendships. So yeah, 100% I'm on the same page with you on that one.
1: You look at like Tiger Woods, like. Any PGA Tour player would say him coming into the game elevated Elevate everybody, everybody to not even places like the next level to places they never even thought was possible. And yeah, you see it with the greats. They bring everybody else around you and give you whatever a chip on your shoulder if you don't already have one. Yeah,
0: we we, we talk about that at Matthews all the time. The company is the Matthew, Matthews mentality. It's like that. I can't make you think that way about life. I can't make you see other people that way, whether it's competitors outside the company or even like, you know, your, your teammates within the company where, yes, you want them to be successful, but you want to be the number one agent, but you need them a lot more than you think. And not to like, not for your own reinforcement of good, happy feelings and like to give you a hug when you're down. No, you need them to push you. Yep. You need them to push you because the truth is somewhere deep down, there's always, you could always be doing more. And a lot of times you'll never know how much you got in. In you until someone forces it out of you. Yep.
1: All right. So you get out of college. The NFL wasn't going to be for you, but you were going to kind of create your own NFL or your own sport and you got into brokerage. Yeah. And now let's kind of just start going down the road of like you took to it quickly, you were hyper focused on it and you said, I'm going to be like the best there ever was. What makes a great broker? Like what started happening in those first
0: years that gave you the confidence and started building your business? Well, A little history lesson here. Uh, I think people make assumptions and I understand why as to where I'm at today. Like, oh, you know, it just was a natural fit for you and you started off fast. No, I did not. (laughs) I was awful. (laughs) I was terrible. I did not close a deal for 17 months. And what year did you enter the industry? 2004. Okay. So brief financial, yeah. Yeah, let me set 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 the the table. The greatest market ever. And I closed nothing. And to give you a sense of how bad I was now, <laughs> this is what makes me so effective as the CEO of a brokerage company is I say, if I could do it, you could do it, Cause there's no way you're worse than I was. But the one thing I had that maybe not everyone have is I never, ever, ever was going to quit ever because you know what happens? You know what you are when you quit? A quitter. You're a fucking quitter. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I am not a quitter. I'm not a quitter. We're not allowed to quit my family. My dad told me a lot of things when i growing up, most of them I probably didn't listen to, but I remember that one. I knew that I was never allowed to quit a sport, ever. One of my kids is struggling with a sport right now. He's like, dad, I don't wanna play this. I said, yeah, sorry, dog, you can't quit. When the season's over, you can choose not to play the sport again. Now you gotta play another one. You always gotta be active, but you will never quit. You're a Matthews and Matthews never quit. It's not that. allowed. And I just was, I was like, well, I guess I can't quit. And it just stuck with me. <laughs> It just stuck with me, so I was like, "I never can quit." You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna get successful in this business, and then I'm gonna quit because I, I hate brokerage. What was your first day like? You showed up. You probably I, had I, no, baggy no. khaki pants. Oh no, the worst, on. dude! I had the I had the Marcus Milichab <laughs> uniform. I probably had a black suit, black shirt, gold tie, brown pants, <laughs> and you know I was balling on a budget, baby. Oh yeah. The night before, I living night, on a draw, baby. Yeah, no, I didn't have a draw. I had debt. So, uh, listen, the night before my first day at the office, I had to YouTube, thank God YouTube had just come out like nine months before I had to YouTube how to tie a tie. No one in my family ever had a job. Yeah. Oh, that's true. They all played football. Yeah. I showed up. And so I didn't, you know, I probably wasn't listening, but I didn't know what time to show up. So I showed up at five 45 because in the morning, my work. So, so let me tell you. I showed up my first day at 5.45 in the morning and I showed up at 5.45 every day for the rest of my life. Wow. Yeah. Until COVID. Until COVID. Yeah. So every day for my entire career, I get in the office at 5.45. So what time do you wake up? Wake up at 4.45. What? I hate it. I'm not a morning person. I hate waking up. My bed is so comfortable. I do it because someone else is out there and they're doing it too. Yeah. You know, so I said, you got to have a boogeyman so anyway, listen. I get there the first day, at five forty-five. <laughs> you know what time the first agent showed up? Seven thirty. I sat outside for an hour and forty-five minutes, and that was that. And showed up the first day. I didn't know what a cap rate was. I didn't know what IRR was. I showed up like I got so much love for markets. They hired me. They gave me a shot. But like, I they didn't they didn't have computers for you. So I showed up and they're like, "Where's your computer?" I was like, "Do I not have a computer?" It's like, "No, you got to buy one." So I, was, I had to buy a computer. And so I will say, just getting kind of into the question of brokerage, I knew I didn't know anything about real estate. I really didn't. I knew I didn't know anything about sales. I was a very, I am a naturally very introverted, shy person. I'm pretty confident I have the world's worst case, undiagnosed case of social anxiety disorder. Like I really, really am shy and I don't like talking to people, which is hilarious that I went into brokerage. Cause I didn't know what brokerage was. You know, <laughs> you know this is a true story. I, my dad and I are very close. So I could, I could tell, I could share these stories in public forum. You know, I was interviewing for a job and it was like the first interview I went on and, you know, my dad calls me. I said, Hey, how'd it go? I was like, Oh, it's good. Like, I felt like really good. I feel like they may offer me a job. It's cool. Like you're going to take it. I was like, well, I don't know. I got some other interviews and you know, I'm not sure this is what I want to do. And he goes, excuse me. Who do you think you are? You get the luxury of choosing. You take the first job that's offered to you. <laughs> Marcus and Miller first job offered. I said, I'm in. Boom. My, my old man told me so. Boom. Bring your own computer. I, no I didn't know. Pay. I didn't know that. I didn't, I don't <laughs> even know if I knew I didn't get paid. I was like, showed up for a like, How much did I get paid, dog? Like nothing. <laughs> All right, fine. Perfect. So anyway, I will say the I knew I didn't know real estate. I didn't have skills. But I knew I had one thing. It was an indomitable will to outwork anyone and everyone. I would sacrifice more than anyone else. And one of the best things about coming out of that—that that, again, it's not the military. It's not that serious. But it's a military lifestyle in college football. Like every morning I'm waking up at five thirty, workout six to eight, school eight to twelve, lunch, training table one to one to two thirty, film two thirty to four thirty, practice four thirty to seven thirty, then training table again, then film, then bed. Boom, night after night after night, from 18 to 22 years old, like that was my life. Yep. And so, and looking back, like, I don't think that was most people's college life. Mm-hmm. And so, man, I feel like I missed out, but I, I got into brokerage. So I was like, all right, well, I wake up early. I can stay, I could work. And I went to my manager at the time, Jonathan Weiss, who's a very special person to me. He he hired me, he, tra- he coached me, like, and I said, hey, who's the person who gets in the earliest? And he's like, oh, that guy, he's, you know, 6.30. Okay. Who stays late? It's like, oh, it's that, that person over there it's like, stays till 8, 30. I was like, all right, I'm again in 30 minutes early. I'm gonna stay 30 minutes later. So I worked six to eight thirty, six six to nine, more or less every day of my life from the 22 to 35. And that includes getting married, having kids. Like that was just where I was mentally. Cause I, I said, I have to make this work. And I know nothing. And because I know nothing and I worked those hours and I was making more cold calls than ever. Like, you know, we have standards at Matthews. You start to make 500 cold calls a week. Like I was ripping 550, 6, 650 a week because my ratios were so bad. I go on a meeting, I couldn't convert it to a BOV. I'd present BOVs. I couldn't earn listings, like because I was so uneducated. And at the time, this isn't just unique to the company I was at. I think at the time the the business generally was understood. Like there wasn't like formal structured mentorship programs. It was like, here's a phone. Let me know when you need me. Don't bug me until you have a hot lead. I was like, I don't know what a hot lead is. Like, wh- <laughs> what does that mean? They said they want to buy value add multifamily in Beverly Hills and A cap. That's a hot lead, right? Yeah. No, <laughs> no, it's not. But I just was never going to quit. And I just kept getting better. And finally, my first three listings expired because the only listings I could get were overpriced ones. They're so like, oh, this idiot will take this deal at this price. If it doesn't sell, it doesn't bother me. But finally, about 17 months in, I closed a deal, and then six months later, I close another, then three months later, I closed another, and then I started rolling, and I got better. But I would say, I always want to correct the record, is a lot of people, and I understand why I assume, like, oh, the like, brokers, dude was born for it. No, I couldn't have been not more born for this profession than any person ever, which allows me to look another person in the eyes, many of them young, coming out of college, guy or gal, whether they have the best personality or the worst, whether they know a ton of real estate or not. And I look in the eye and I said, You could be the greatest of all time, but you just can never quit. You have to keep going. Most don't. Yeah. Okay. But it gives me tremendous conviction when I'm coaching these young men and women up in the business because I did it and I didn't have any real estate skill sets. I didn't know anything about sales. My personality is not. And I'm cool right now because like, you know, it's four of us in a room and, and I could get rolling. But if you ever see me at a conference, like I am back against the wall, frozen, just like, I don't want to be here. 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 Get me out of here as quickly as possible. And my entire family's like that, period. And so when we're at the next conference together, I'm going to go around no, the room no, no. and tell everybody, hey, go talk. Yeah. To you. <laughs> and, you, and you know what? Then get ready to scrap. Bro. Like <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, cause yeah. And I, you know, I'll just dip. I'm will just dip. i like, I'm out. And they're like, but those are all real estate. I, like, I get that. I'm out. Like life, life's too short. I'm dealing with this. All right. So you're there.
1: You have your baggy pleated khaki pants yep. and oversized coat. Yeah. And you got, you did, took you 17 months. Yeah.
0: Looking like an Uber driver. Looking yeah. like an Uber yeah, driver. Yeah,
1: yeah. And you're getting paid like one, two at the time. No, 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 no. Uber drivers are way better paid. Though. Okay.
0: So we're not even yeah. there. Yeah. What? In California, Uber drivers get like benefits. What was no, k- UA, 5 or whatever that <laughs> proposal for the pl- that the proposition was?
1: Yeah. What was the tipping point? Was it somebody, was there, like, when did you start to
0: get Great it? Great financial crisis. Okay. GFC. Best thing that ever happened to me because I was the only one dumb enough to keep working and not give up. Wow. And everyone else who is smarter than me, more educated, they're like, dude, brokerage is a horrible industry. You got to get out. Real estate is literally the epicenter of the the metaphorical bomb that went off in our economy. Get out of real estate, like get whatever job you can. And brokerage, there are no transactions. Like you, my friend, are an idiot. And at this point, you had been in for four years. Four years. So you were kind of I was start starting to yeah, make hay. I'll just look, my first year, I made no money. My second year, I made like a hundred grand. Third year, was like 300. So you're like, yeah, dude, I'm all right, let's go. Let's go. Let's <laughs> go, baby. You know, like I'm about to be paid. Nope. <laughs> it went back down big time. Year four, it went down to 250. Year, year five, was like, dude, it was like 110 grand. Now I was like, I had closed like three or four deals in the worst 2009, but I was like, dude, I got a job. Like I'm paying my bills. I think I was married at the time. My wife had like a job and I was like, yeah, I was the richest man in Babylon. Like I was like, this is, I'm living the, the high life. Like no way am I giving up this gig. Well, I was at an office that had like 80 desks. It was like they had 80 desks and there were 81 people at all times pre-GFC. Well, by 2009 and 10, there were like 20 dudes. It was just, it was a wasteland. It was me in one cube and I did retail. So shopping centers and a little net lease. And the guy who sat across from me, Dave Harrington, did multi-family in LA. And um, Dave's now president of our company. And we just every day pushed each other. We just every day just looked each other in the eye and just basically like talk shit to each other, like you're a little bitch. Like I'm gonna <laughs> co- make more calls than you. And like we just pushed <laughs> each other. And we were, like I said, the only guys dumb enough not to quit, dumb enough to keep making calls, dumb enough to think that any call or any meeting or any BOV would ever even lead to a deal that would sell because not, almost none of them did. But what happened was in 2011, started getting a little better. Still sucked. But like you look at year over year transaction volume started going up and the deal was still like, you know, 20% of like, you know, the pre GFC peak 2006. And then 2012, it got a lot better. And then 2013, the deals came back. But the thing about brokerage, and this is true about your business and the principle, the deals come back, but the brokers don't come back as fast. Right. So the deal volume comes back, but the brokers. It takes a while for the the ranks of brokerage to fill up, and the ones that do, they're new. And you're four, five, six, seven years in the business. You have more experience, but more importantly, you went through a massive crisis, and your skill sets are on point now. Now you're like, I know how to manage pricing expectations. I know how to overcome objections. I know how to just look emotionally and mentally. I know how not to get too excited about a deal because I just went through a period where nothing was selling, and I I can't count that money before it closes because I'm it's probably never going to see it. And so I'm just mentally better suited for this, for this business. And 2012, 13, 14, like, man, it like, I got shot out of a cannon. Like it just went, let's just say I hit heights that I had never in my wildest dreams thought were imaginable, created generational wealth where just in of pure financial terms, never would ever, ever have to work again. And it was all because of two things. I was never going to quit and there was a massive dislocation in the market. Not as bad as what we're seeing today, but today is a perfect, perfect, perfect example of that opportunity for so many young agents at Matthews, just in the business. It's a perfect opportunity for young principals. Yep. Because when the GFC hit, the older guys, 50, 60, they had made so much money, they owned buildings, they had wealth and they had distractions, they had kids. They were like, I'm done. Yeah. I saw a lot of successful agents doing millions and millions a year before GFC say, okay, this is kind of like, this is it. It's like, it's time. Yeah. And then I saw m- insane amounts of 22 to 32 year old agents who had just had, either just quit because they weren't making money or they had made some money and they spent it all doing stupid things. Like, And I'm not just talking like popping bottles and buying boats. I'm talking like they had bought real estate, highly levered, then they lost it all. And that was a distraction. But then also again, brokerage was like not a career you wanted to be in at the time. So there's this giant chunk of your peer competition that's gone and uh, one day you wake up and the bomb stops falling. You kind of look at yourself, you're like, dude, I'm like alive. Like, and you look around and everyone else is gone and you're like, and all this is for me now. Yeah, And that is what's happening today. And that's the message I say, like, you know, you're seeing velocity declines of 55, 65, 75%. And everyone's like, this is so bad. I was like, well, first of all, this is how you and I get old. It's like, oh, it ain't a great financial crisis, right? Because it isn't, <laughs> but it's, it's a real deal. Yeah, not yet. I don't think it'll be that bad. I don't even. It's a real deal, but this is in a weird, twisted sixth sense. This is what you want. You don't want anyone to suffer. You don't want anyone to feel financial pain, but you recognize, like, in really easy markets, any broker can can make money. It teaches bad habits. Bad habits. In any good market where value, dude, industrial, like values are going up. Yeah. Bad operators, bad developers, bad principals. Bad fundraisers, like they can do good ones, do better always, but it's the tough market. It's, it's not that really good owners, really good agents make let don't like make less money. We all make less money, but it gives you, it's, I call it the gold rush, man. The yep. gold rush for those two or three years coming out of a tough time. You just don't quit and just, just keep chopping wood, keep swinging the ax. Eventually the tree falls. And we did the Zach. We, exactly, we did something the other day. It's like, did the victor go the spoils? Like- the spoils of battling through this market or battling through the G- GFC, the spoils were significant on the other side.
1: Well, it's like what you said with the football game. This is like where you're practicing your ass off because when the game starts again, yeah. it's just going to be easy. They, yeah.
0: The- it. Uh, you know, sh- some of those games were easy for us. Again, not for me. They're they like, yo, Kyle, we need you to run <laughs> down full speed and put your head into the wedge. I, like, I got that. Like, I can do that. And I was like, yo, can I get out there and like... Drop a little cover too. It's like no way. <laughs> Just paint this
1: one picture and you can paint it in 30 seconds, a minute. I don't care. But for anybody going, man, things are really tough right now. You kind of talked about 0910, but paint a picture. What was oh nine and 10 like as a broker? Because it was it was dark. Dark. Um, it was empty. What was your pitch? What did you tell people in 09? Man. Hey, sorry you bought that building for 10 million, but I'll sell it for two. No, right now,
0: you know, yeah, you know. By <laughs> then, I had started to get better, and I realized, <laughs> I realized. While I had to have an interest generator on the call, I had to have a purpose for the call. Really, the the best way in sales to get something going is well, keep them from hanging up, and that's the interest generator. Something of value, like, hey, a deal just traded down the street. Hey, I just saw this this lease get executed. Here are the updated market rents, and at that time they were falling. And just said, look, I'm here to provide this information, and Ideally, you know how it's valuable to you. Ideally, you know how it applies it. If not, I can provide that to you. Let's grab coffee. Let's grab lunch. You gotta eat. You might as well let me pay for it. Like was I always said? Like it was pretty effective. Like yeah, I guess so. I really only did breakfast meetings because it was the cheapest meal. There's an intimacy about breaking bread with people. Yeah, it's the cheapest meal and it had the lowest opportunity cost of my time. Yeah. I say hey, we breakfast at six thirty. Like six thirty was like yep six <laughs> thirty. So six thirty to like seven forty five, I do breakfast. I get out of there for like twenty five bucks. And I'd have that meeting and I'll talk about what we were talking about in a second. And then I get to the office by eight 30 and nine o'clock call time. And then I still was ripping my coldies, you know, it was like, I was, oh my gosh. I was, I was hitting it. So, so the answer to your question, <laughs> I would just do my best to keep the owners in touch with what was going on the market from updated sales, updating rent, updating rents. That was really the driver. And then just getting them to engage in a conversation is like, look, what is happening at your building? What concerns do you have? I'm not cold calling you saying I have the answers, but I certainly can work hard to achieve some sort of information, some provide some sort of service that I'm not saying you're not going to lose money, but there are there is 100% ways to mitigate those losses. And through me and the services and the information I have at my disposal and my effort, my energy, and what I bring to the table, I could put you in a position, I'm not here to say I'm going to make you money, but I might be able to help to keep you from losing more. yeah. And I most of the time on the call, you don't know how or why, but you, you know there is a way. You just need him to engage in conversation. And then I get to that breakfast meeting and say, "Look," and I was retail. He's like, "I got this strip center. There's ten units. I've already lost three tenants. My other seven, all of their rents are above market because this was like GFC. And like, okay, where are market rents? Like, okay, are there ways? Like, have you dove into your tenants' credit worthiness? Do you understand where market rents are?" What if we could kind of cut the line and say, all right, like they're paying 36 bucks a square foot and market's 28. What if we went proactively and say, hey, we'll give you 32, but we need you extend the lease. And then, okay, extension, like we'll proactively reduce your rent, but we're just looking for a commitment here. We're looking to get the weighted average lease term of the, of the asset up to kind of, if nothing else, put your anxiety to bed. And ideally, maybe there's a refinance on the table, but again, there weren't there were there was not a lot of lending going on. Just something. And maybe it's like, how about this? It's like kind of the greater fool theory. It's like, hey, you have an asset and your rents are grossly inflated. And the weighted average lease term is four years. So in four years, most of those leases will come due and there will be a mark to market. Like your rents are going to come down. Are you aware of this? No, I wasn't. Okay. This is a bomb and there's a clock and there's four years left on it. You do not want to hold this asset when when it does. So even if we have to sell it for less than what it's worth today in the GFC, which is less than what it was worth two years ago by far, that's still the right move and will get you into an asset. Even at the same yield, there's, there's some closing costs. So your net effective yield will be lower than what you're getting. But if you, let's look at your wealth and what happens over five years by doing that trade versus staying in this. The net-net is significantly better by executing this trade, even in a bad market. Because if you're doing a 1031, you're swimming in the same market. You sell low, you buy low. Yeah. You sell high, you buy high. I always remind owners that you don't get all the upside and on the downside. Right. So I would have that conversation. I said, <laughs> I understand the value of your assets gone down, but right now I'd always say, I recognize and I empathize with, with you hearing that your value, the value of the assets less. I feel that. I know. And let me tell you, it's not about me, but this is the worst part of my job is coming and sitting down with an owner and saying the value of your asset, your holdings has gone down, but that doesn't change the fact that it has. And so now we need to talk about moving forward, what's the best path moving forward. But right now, there's another broker having another conversation with the owner of the asset you're going to buy who's saying the same thing. So your assets come down, their assets come down. But if we 1031, we'll get you into an asset, even if the yield's slightly less, but all of their rents are replaceable. Their price per pound is cheaper, therefore. The corner's a little better. Security-wise, safety-wise, even in one of the worst markets ever, ever maybe, this is a better asset than that. This is going to not be good. Let someone else take that risk. Let someone else, whether they're a fool and they just don't know, or they actually have a special relationship with certain tenants that they can get them to sign. Like, that's fine. God bless. I always tell owners, we want them to do well on the asset, but that doesn't mean it's the right property for you. And then I got better and I was communicating it. So myself and Dave, we would carpool to save money for gas. Like we would bring lunches in. Like I was, I, it, like, it's cliche. we would be making lunches, making little sandwiches. PBJ. PBJ. Yeah. I was more of like a turkey club guy, but okay. you know.
1: Three pieces of bread or two? Two. All right. yeah, You got to save on that I, money. I, you know,
0: I was, I, dude, I wasn't working out. I had no time to work out. So I had to like, you know, <laughs> I had to keep the, my figure and uh, I couldn't, you know, I didn't have that luxury. And so we would rip, like, you know, it's like your first couple of years in brokerage, you kind of know you're signing up for a lot of cold calls. Like most people, they'd say, let oh, that's 250, 300. For me, it was 500 cold calls. All right. 500. 500 a week. And so for the first year, two, even three years. And then when like the 2007, I started making a little money, you start seeing that slip. Now, some of that is because, you know, I have six listings and I have four escrows. And and like, so there's only so much time in the day, but candidly, that's what the weekend's for. I could always get that time back. So it was probably because I felt like I was on the path. Years five, six, and seven, I got back to that darkness of like 500 cold calls, no deals, but again, I wasn't going to quit. So we were ripping 500 calls. Did you enjoy it? At that point in my life, no, 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 no. Cold calls. I didn't dread them the way you, you do early on because like you had been hung up on so many times. Like, and you realize nothing bad happens. Yeah. I'd been called the worst things on the planet. And then I realized like, <laughs> it's not like they go on social media and post to like a hundred thousand people. Like, yo, this guy, Kyle Matthews, called me. He's an idiot. Like, yeah. you know, maybe they do that now. That sucks if they do. But, <laughs> but yeah, I saw it like Twitter. Sometimes there's like owners like, yo, I just got this call from this broker and this is what he said. And he's so stupid. Look at this deal. It's such a bad deal. And I was like, man, they are fucking hater, bro. Like, <laughs> like come on. Like that, that's a human being on the other line. That's a broker trying to make it. And I understand he might've had a terrible interest generator. In and I understand he might even been a little rude. Like show that guy a little grace. Yep. Like, come on. Like, how bad is your life? You got to take time out of your day. How successful could you be if you're going on Twitter or something and posting about some call or some deal or broker post and you're hating on it? Like get a life.
1: Yep. I, anyway, cold so that, calling has been the key to my early six would cold call and we're in 2023 and it's still the best way to generate
0: business. It is great. There's no but to that. I would just say, how about this? Let me change the mentality for all the owners listening. You don't want a cold call from the guy three times a day or whatever it is like, but you want him to call you when he's got that hot lead. How does that work? Yeah. Let me tell you how that works out for you. It doesn't, you know who that broker is going to call when he finally digs up that good. He's going to call the owner. It was nice to him. He's going to call the owner who allowed him to, to the broker to take him to breakfast. He's going to call the owner who's like, Hey, listen, I don't have anything. I know you call me a lot. Keep doing it. Cause the owner is smart enough to realize, Hey, this guy calls me once a month. Maybe he has the same crappy interest generator. Like, what are your plans? Right. That's bad interest generator, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but I know that that's going to take five minutes, 12 times a year, 16 minutes. That's one hour of my life, 10 years in a row. That's 10 hours of my life. But over the next 10, 10, 10 years, if this guy stays in the business and he sells me one deal, I'm going to make millions on it. And let me tell you, 10 hours to make a million dollars, that's a hundred thousand dollars an hour. Is that a good return on your time? That's Fuck pretty you, good. That's good pretty good. Time. I would take don't that. Don't ever, ever, ever hang up on a cold caller broker Yeah, because you never know who's going to be the great ones. They all have the ability to be great and you want them to send you your best, their best deal. The deal that you're going to make millions on the deal that's going to change your life, but you don't want to take their five minute crappy cold call. Like that's not how it works, bro.
1: That is not how it works. That is a great way to frame it.
0: Well, I've had a lot of
1: practice. You,
0: you know? have had a lot of <laughs> practice. <laughs> like I, so I started doing this. Like, hey, I don't want you know to only call me if you have a deal. And then as I got older, I got a little, you know. First of all, you have a little money. You, you're like, well, all right. Like, but then I was, I was like, wait a minute, hold on, time out. You want me to only call? And then I started battling these guys on the phone. And most owners were like, all right, like I like this. I like and and a lot of people responded positively. They're like, no, 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 no. I said. How many buyers of real estate, value add real estate, are in this submarket? There's 50 buyers. There's 100 buyers. There's 100 of you there's only one of me who's ma- ripping 500 cold calls to private clients digging d- dredging the swamps and beating the bushes there's only one of me so let's reset the table here like I'm not gonna say I'm more valuable but we're on par so let's like I like I, I wanted the owners to know like I was coming at it like hold on I bring as much to you as you bring to me this is a mutually beneficial relationship you are not doing me favors right now yep okay but I'm also not doing you favors like we can put each other in a position to be more successful but you got to take my cold call. You yeah. got to take the cold. You got to take the coldie. I
1: used to tell people when I'd cold call them to buy their buildings. I'm literally trying to give you money. I am calling with a briefcase of money yeah. that I want to give to you in exchange for your property. If that is, I'm not selling you life insurance. I'm not selling no. you. I'm not some asshole broker calling to get a <laughs> listing. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. It could be worse, man. But, uh, I could be a broker calling. All no, is <laughs> fair in love and war. All right. So you never give up. You make it through the heat of 2009, great financial crisis. By 2014, you're flying through the sky. And at some point you decided maybe I'm going to go start my own deal.
0: Mm-hmm. How did that transition happen? So I was at the first company I started at. I My business has taken off. It's 2011, 12. Like I was doing really well. And most of my... I was shopping centers, right? And retail. And most of my business, it's a longer story and it's not as relevant to this conversation, had gravitated to account-based institutional business. And I was like a non-core. And so retail had gotten hammered in the GFC, more than like, not more than anything, but it was it was bad. And these uh, publicly traded companies had been punished for their BNC non-core assets. Like it, it just crushed their portfolios because that's where they, ex- it, they had experienced a lot of pain. Okay, But they had recognized their core top 15 MSA, best, best, best assets actually did better. And so the street, based on how their shares are, you know, they go up and go down, which drives a lot of the C-suites decision making, as you know, they said, hey, we want to get rid of all our non-core assets. And so Kimco at the time had, and don't forgive me, I might be off by, but they had 800 centers and they wow. they came out on a public call and said, hey, we want to get down to 300 of like the best. And so I was like, well, they're going to sell 500 centers. And then like Preet said that and Weingart and Regency and Bricksmore, which was Central Watt to Bricksmore and RPAI, and Invent Trust. And I had just kind of like gotten in with a couple of them. like, I'll tell you, I have so much love and respect and so much gratitude. This guy, Dan Horwitz, who's the CEO of DDR, which is now Site Centers. I'm actually going to have Dan on the podcast in a couple of weeks. See, this okay. is like, he's doing me fast like, Yo, Dan, you, like... <laughs> <laughs> fly out to Nashville, inconvenience yourself. Dan, I appreciate you, man. I always got a nice bottle of wine for him. So anyway, he just, I think he was, he played football at Colgate, I was football. And like, I don't, I couldn't even tell you how we connected. And he, they gave me a shot on like a crappy $3 million center in some nowhereville, And I worked my ass. And I actually, and I found a buyer. It's tough, so, okay, fine. Then like Kimco, Matt Golden, who's one of my closest buddies now in the business, like he kind of handled the West, and like I got to know Matt. And he gave me a shot on like a really bad deal, a really tough deal, in, like Sacramento, and I got it done. And then I just called every other. I was like, hey, you know, I'm doing deals for DDR and Kimco. I think it's a good time. We'd sit down and talk. I'm the I'm the non-core specialist because like at the <laughs> time, all the brokers were like, "Yo, give me those big centers," and I was like, "They're they're going after a seventy million dollar center," and my my attitude was like, "Give me ten sevens, Yeah. Right. Give me your worst. Give me your tired. You're hungry. You're poor. Like I'm the trash man. I'll take it out. There's a lot of money in trash. There's the mafia figured out. Yeah. <laughs> and so I started getting in front of these decision makers and these owners, whether CIO, CEO, like EVP of transactions, and saying like, Hey, I'm here to talk about these really tough assets. They're like, Man, nobody else wants to touch these things. Like brokers were still. They didn't want to get their their fingers dirty. And I lived in the dirt and I was like, let's go. And I started selling them. And so I started doing all this institutional business with the largest operating REITs and then their private equity partners like Blackstone or Angelo Gordon. And the feedback what, that I started receiving at the time was like, hey, we love working with you, but in committee, it's harder to get you approved from a sale because of you know whatever the flag you're, you're rocking. And, and so it was that you know, kind of just like, oh, okay. And then, because my business was growing so much, I needed more support. And this is a big thing about Matthews, we'll, we'll dive into later. And the company I was at, it was like, hey, I have, I now have 20 listings, 12 escrows. I, I still need to generate more business. I'm a clienter facing negotiating. Like it's, I call the sausage making, right? It's, the production of BOVs and OMs, coordinating digital and ground photography, drafting email blasts and negotiating at the time with like MailChimp or Constant Contact and how many end of the postcard company. And like, I was doing, it's a do it yourself company. You are your own entire company basically. And at the time, and I don't know if it's changed because it's been a while. It was like, Oh, you need to, you need help. Go hire it, go pay for it. So and I'm just, you know, I'm a simple-minded guy. I'm a, I'm a, you know, I like to think I'm a good teammate. I'm like, okay, fine. Like, so then I hired an assistant. And then it's like, I was doing more complicated deals. Like every deal I had to have a 10-year cash flow model, lever and lever at IRRs. And then I had to hire an analyst. Then I had to hire like a graphics person, then a transaction manager. And then, you know, I'm basically like this company. I have payroll, I have insurance. Like I, the worst part was I'm managing human beings, which is fine if that's what you sign up. But, But I need to do... RPAs, revenue producing activities is what we call them at Matthews. RPAs and brokerage. So, you know, cold call, meeting, pitch, negotiate. If you're not doing one of those four things at any given time, it's not a high value activity. It's not an RPA and it's probably inefficient. Okay. So when at the company I was at, I got to a point where it was like 50, 50, 50% of my time I was, I was making calls. I was meeting owners, traveling around the country, pitching deals, negotiating deals. But 50% of my time I'm sitting there in like InDesign Photoshop and a photo you know, wondering like, you know, is there a better way to get more cars in this parking lot? Like, you know, the ground aerial photography, back then they sent helicopters up. They didn't have drones. Like this how <laughs> old school. And it was very expensive. But like, it's like, yo, know, the helicopter went up on the wrong day. They went up on Thursday. They're supposed to go up on Saturday, Saturday. There were more cars in the parking lot. Now you got to get back up, but they don't want to. And it was just like, I'm like, this can't be good. And so it was kind of just a combination of things. I remember the big one was, I have a brother. Uh, Clay drafted to the Packers. And I had some clients call, some owners say, Hey, man, like, we've always want to go to Lambeau Field and we love, like, are you going? I was like, Yeah, I'm going this fall. And like, yeah, we'd love to go. And I was like, Oh, you know, maybe I'll just put a crew together. I'll do like a client event. And so I got like 12 big clients and none of them I had done business with. Like, I had conversational relationships. So it wasn't like I had never talked to them, but I hadn't done business with them. So I went to my manager. I was like, Yo, I want to do this trip. It's going to cost about 20 stacks. It's going to be, it's a big <laughs> one, which is like 40,000 today's. <laughs> but let's go. I was on a 60 40 split. Like, hey, I'll put in 12, you put in eight. We were talking about this earlier, right? Yeah, Like, yeah. like no, nah, we don't do that. I was like, eh, no, I understand. Like, we had to do it for you, I do it for everyone. I was like, okay, fine. But like, not everybody's asking for it. It's fine. All right. How about this? I'll put up 20. And then like, first deal that closes, just reimburse my eight. Like, no, we're not going to do that either. But this is a good, he's, he's like, no, I don't disagree that this is a good strategy, but we just don't, this is not our business strategy. We don't, so I did it. I just spent the 20 grand. And this is like 2011, 12. Like, you know, it's I still, you know, I'm licking wounds from the GFC. I wasn't rolling like, you know, and $20,000 is a lot of money. We're still eating club sandwiches with two pieces yeah, of bread. Yeah, no, maybe, you know. I'm, maybe yeah. you
1: got the third of bread Maybe I got some mayonnaise on it now. Oh, okay. Like
0: I may even drop a tomato at that point. Like, you know, I was starting to feel a little confident. <laughs> starting to get a little, you know, starting to blow a BMF. <laughs> but uh, no, I uh, so I did it. And, you know, went on the trip, they had a great time, but it really was like, it was amazing because I got to know them on a personal level. They got to know me. I think they kind of felt like that energy I brought and they're like, yeah, oh, we'll give this guy a shot. I didn't like, you know, the 12, I got over the next 12 months, I was awarded two or three deals, you know, and that brought in three, 400 grand, took their 40%, the company. And that's why I was like, man, this isn't a partnership. And I just, that was what just, I think that was the straw that broke the camel's back. It just, it was time. Yeah. And I'd been there for almost a decade and it had been a great run And to this day, I tremendous gratitude for the opportunity. And I'm very, very, very close with a lot of people there. So it just was time. Like I wanted to be at one company forever. It just, what I tell brokers all the time, if you are a fast growth broker, you got to be at a fast growth brokerage company. If you're a slow growth broker, you actually don't want to be at a fast growth. You want to be a slow growth. Like you kind of want to align yourself with the ethos and the energy and the capital investment and like the mentality of the leaders of the company you're at. So if you're an absolute dog and you're like, I'm grown, 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 let's go, go reinvest, reinvest, reinvest. And you're at a company that's generally kind of like stable, like, Hey, no, we're good. Like, no, we, we have our deployment, like everything fits perfectly. It's going to create a lot of rub, a lot of friction. And you just don't want that type of aggravation or resentment in your life. Like life's hard enough, let alone, you know, brokerage and without even getting into all the other things. And so, I'm answering your question. I ended up going over to a company, Colliers, Colliers International. Okay. It was kind of like, (laughs) it was the same thing where it was like, it was a do-it-yourself company. And again, I don't know if it's changed, but like, it was like, but the difference was they're like, hey, we don't really do any retail. We love having you do whatever you want. So at that point, it was like, I was effectively, they put me in this like office and once a month, my manager come by, like, oh, you buy anything. I'm like, nah, I'm good. He's like, all right, cool. Like, <laughs> and and I, I I went there in January 2013, and in 2013, um, you know, was their top guy in the West or whatever? And in 2014, I was a top guy globally, out of you know however many damn yeah, out of however, however many thousand agents, and I did not want to start my own company. Really? Yeah. So I'll tell you the story. I've I, I, uh, I think people are shocked. Like. It was February 2015. I'll try and condense this. February 2015. And my manager's like, hey, Kyle, we, we have this awards thing in Denver. It's like the Everest Awards, and you're the top producer. We want to give you an award. I was like, nah, man, you do Just what is it? Like a trophy? Just send it to me. Again, I'm, I'm shy. I do not want this. Love awards, like, not much. Like, go, just put it over there. I, and, and it's not important to me, right? You giving me a higher split? Yeah, I'll fly out to Denver. Like you giving me a support, let's go. But like <laughs> award, like no, it's all good, man. Honestly, you know. He's like, no, 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 no. Like the the president of America is going to be there, and the CEO is like a thousand people. I was like, well, definitely not going. He's like, look, it would be a bad reflection on me if he didn't go. And uh, one thing I'm always going to be, I'm always going to be a great teammate. Yeah. Even if I don't like, I don't want to. Let me get back to football. I don't want to block this guy. Like I want to score a touchdown. But but not every time my play is going to be called, man. That's just life. That's being part of a team. You don't get all the benefits. An amazing experience of being on a team, but then every place say, I want the ball, we call those wide receivers. And so I was like, that's fine. So I go out there and they do the award. And I say, thank you, you know, it's like a 10 second speech. I'm out. And then after they introduced me to the the leadership and they're like, oh man, like great year. Da-da-da-da. And they're like, hey, when you get back, I want to talk to you. Something exciting. Something exciting is going down. I was like, oh, okay. I kind of picked up the body language. I was like, mm, Okay. So when I got back, they let me know like, Hey, we're going public. I was like, Fuck yeah, let's go. What does that mean? You know, like, <laughs> I mean, I know what going public means. but like, do I get like money? No, 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 no. Do I get like stock? Nope. What? Like they're like. You'll just be under a bigger microscope. Yeah. Like more paperwork, more regulation. No, it wasn't. I, you know, I was like, Ugh. and they're like, well, it opens up capital markets and we get cheaper costs. We can invest in platforms. I like, okay. I, I, I get down with that. And they're like, but hey, we want to talk to you about something. Your business, it's unique to Collier's. You're in LA, but my deals were everywhere. Like there's a time, it was like a Blackstone JV with DDR. They're like, hey, we got a center in Wisconsin. We got one in Cincinnati and we got one in Georgia. So, you know, three states. And if I had a really good teammate at Collier's in that market, which sometimes I did, like I would generally speaking, like line them up and like, let's go work it together. I wanted, but most markets, they didn't have it. So I just do it myself and I provided high level service, kept getting hired. And then at the time I had brought on some young guys, basically all my younger brother's friends, they had all reached out saying, Hey, can you mentor? we want to get into real estate. Can you mentor? I was like, yeah, you know, and that's a different conversation, but like I had very set principles and and expectations in terms of like, if I'm going to take time away from my business to mentor, here's what I need to see from you. And they were doing net lease. And like, so through that, I was doing a lot of net lease and net leases everywhere. Like you could have a guy in LA who's like, oh, I focus in C stores. I mean, he could close 30 deals and. 20 different states. Yeah, So colleagues came and they said, Hey, it was, I think it was a first service was like a Canadian company and they were building through M&A. They weren't organic. They were growing. They're buying a bunch of companies and just doing PE roll up and then sell to the market at a higher multiple and the money in between is the free money. And they were buying all these like, you know, it's like Houston Realty Advisors. It's like, we do sales, leasing, and management in Houston, one office. Like, and they're like, we don't have a Houston office. So they were buying all these things, but in their negotiations, they were offering them, if I remember correctly, and again, like a lot of concussions here. So it's like, (laughs) exclusive market coverage rights, which means any deal in the Collier's network, like we'll go through you and you'll get a percentage of it. Well, they made these agreements with these companies and they never told me that. And they came like, hey, just as we roll these companies up, You're going to have to start giving a big chunk of your fee to these local. I was like, hell no. (laughs) Well, it's their market. And I was like, well, no, 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 no. If it was their market, someone like me couldn't come in and earn the business. They're sleeping. Like they are not doing their job. (laughs) If I called an owner on an asset in Houston, Texas, which I, I wasn't, like I was more working on an account. And then they would say, hey, I have an asset in Houston. The owner would say, hey, Kyle, love you. And in these markets we'll work with you. but if it's Houston, it's gonna be this guy at your company. But I never got that. That conversation never took place. And so they're like, well, you're gonna to have to. I was like, no, I'm not. <laughs> That's why Matthews exists. And I said, "You like, is the top producer, they're like, yeah, you know, and you make up 2% of our revenue. We're, we're gonna side on the, with the other 98. And they were like, they were super nice. Again, I'm still very, very close with all of the leadership that was there at the time. But I just said, look, I, this is not only destructive to my business. Let me put myself in in with the junior agents that were just kind of coming up in the business underneath my guidance. They didn't have that. Like they couldn't all of a sudden have 30, 40% of every deal out the door, like on a tax, like a fiefdom tax. And so I just said, Hey, I'm going to have to go. And they said, we understand. And then I looked at, you know, okay, CB, JL, it's all the same thing. It's a bunch of little fiefdom silos. Like, it's all like, you can't do a deal in this market. If you do, you have to pay this. It's very different. And then everything else was a boutique. I wasn't going to go back to the place I was. That didn't make sense. So I was like, well, you know, I got eight, nine employees. I got, you know, 15, 20, junior year. I was like, well, you know, I'll just do my own thing.
1: So that when you left... And when started Matthew's Office One was in El Segundo. El Segundo, man. You took, so you started, it wasn't like you in a laptop day one. No, no, no. no, no. So you I had a full I went team to, built out the no, day you started.
0: Full team. But the reason for that was because when I went to callers, I said, hey, I'm going to go, I'm just going to do my own thing. They said, yeah, we get it. Like, I'm, I'm not going to go to, you know, one of your competitors. Like, it just doesn't make sense. They, they have the same rules. So they're like, okay, I get it. And they're like, what do you want to do about all these guys? I was like, well, I'd like for them to come with, but I'm not going to, I don't want to have that conversation without your blessing. And they said, no, we assume they're coming with, like, you should talk to them because we don't really have, they're not going to stay here. Like basically if you leave and and they aren't coming with you, like they're gone, like we're going right. to fire them. And I was like, well, I, obviously I didn't want that. So with Collier's blessing, I sat them down and I said, they kind of knew what was going on. Like there were some issues and I said, Hey, listen, here's what's going on. Here's what's happening. I'm going to start this company. They've given me permission to speak with you and love for you guys to. I'm gonna go start it regardless, even if it's just me. But if you see value in me and you believe that this is the right decision, love for you to have you at the company. So, you know, they gave me whatever 45 days to figure it all out. They the call your threw me a party on the last day. Like it, it was very amicable. We they kept my callers email on, like I think I had 118 deals under contract. Like Damn. all of them went through. Collier's for 12 months. Like it was all good. It was all good. It was a very unique situation that I think they realized that because of what they were doing with, we're going public and it was like, dude, it was a, it was a home run for them. They did everything right. There's no judgment. Cause like I would have, I guess done the same thing. Like it, they crushed it. They understood like it was kind of putting me in a tough spot and it was like, I don't want to say collateral damage, it didn't feel like, it was just like, hey, it's just, uh, like I said, not everything's meant to last forever. You hope they do. Yeah. But they're saying, hey, take your time, like can't take forever. But the only thing was they didn't want any public announcements because they thought it might cause issues. So many conversations they were having as they were going public. So I started Matthews April 24th, roughly was their 27th, Monday the 27th. So that was almost eight years ago to the day. Did I answer your question? Yeah, you did. It's very different, and no business plan. Uh, yeah, I guess I'm just
1: going to do this. I'm so tempted to want to ask when I hear do 118 it. deals. You said that at one point you made 300 thousand, but then we never really figured out as a broker the production levels you were able to get up to. I'm assuming yeah, this n- is north
0: of a figure. Yeah, which so you, allowed me to start a company. It's look, Matthews is big now. Yeah there's no invest outside investment. There's no
1: debt. You didn't raise venture capital at a single dollar dude at a pre-seed $700 million valuation. Oh, well,
0: if that, you know, (laughs) because I'm an idiot and I have no background in business. Yeah. If I had known I could do that, could I I still do that? You can do that. All right, let's talk. No, 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 no. It just, like I said, I had been so blessed. Like God's been good to me, man. Yeah. uh, He's been good to my family and my wife and my kids. And, but like, we're just talking brokerage. Like I am the luckiest human being ever. If you look at when I started, where I started, the GFC, like people say, well, you make your own luck. And no doubt I understand that concept. And I believe like hard work, it's like the harder you work, the luckier you get, no doubt. But there are so many little weird things that happen along the way that set up perfectly my, my, what I've accomplished that yep. there is no way I can stand in front of anyone and say, I did this. You stand on the backs of giants. That's right. The only time I'll say I is I founded the company. Like yeah. I literally am the founder, okay? But it's all we, us, and are. One of our, uh, we have 12 principles. One of our principles is not I, me, my, it's we, us, are. First principle is Matthews is the team. Second is always, produ- always protect your teammates. And so maybe it's football background. Maybe it's just, I don't know, it's just me. Maybe that's how I was raised. It's probably just a little bit of everything. There is no way in hell I could ever be sitting here with you today without the men and women I've worked alongside pretty much my entire life at this point, but yep. definitely at Matthews. And I think that allows us to have so much fun. It allows us to prank each other and talk shit to each other and do all those fun things. Cause like we've been through the battles and we, you know, we're in, we battle every day. We're still in a battle.
1: How do you, I think we talked about it earlier when we were sitting in the conference room. What's the line between, we're here to to get shit done and we're not here to play ping pong and foosball in yeah, the yeah. office all day.
0: Yeah. You know, it's uh, Conor McGregor. We're not here to take part. We're here to take, take over. over. <laughs> yeah, that's us.
1: And you are doing that.
0: Yeah. Well, let me, stupid football analogies. I've recognized we've done a lot. I recognize people on the outside. I was like, damn, what the hell? As I, like, I look at it like we are backed up on our own goal line. We got a couple first downs. We're moving the chains, but we're on our 30 yard line with 70 yards to go. We got so far to get to our destination, the end zone, billion dollar public exit. So you could sit here and say, oh, you've done? Well, yeah, sure. I get that. I recognize that. I'm not discounting that we've accomplished a lot, but we are so far away from where we're heading that it doesn't feel like it. It doesn't feel like it. So I got a lot of fire in my belly to keep going. And I know my teammates do. Let me get to your question. You said, hey, what is the line between having like, in a paraphrase, having that culture of fun and celebrating success, but then becoming the company that has the beer garden, the ping pong table. Well, first of all, you got to define fun. Yeah. Fun for me is winning. Playing ping pong. I know you could win. It's not winning. right? Drinking beer at an office. Like what the fuck? That's not winning. But uh, work, just, but work-life balance. Uh, yeah. you. Are, yeah. I'm, I'm just teasing That's funny. you. Yeah. You tease me. <laughs> I do. Like, less, like, hey, Let's go, baby. I'll talk about that. <laughs> That's I'll be, next. No, okay, fine. You know, I just think those are distractions. This is my opinion. I've never seen a brokerage company grow like we have or done what we've done where their value proposition to their agents is like, yo, we got beer gardens and ping pong tables. Yeah. You know what our value proposition is? Our technology, our database, our support, ser- our shared service platform, our culture, the way we push our agents. Like, this is a culture of accountability. You want to go do a couple deals. Go to any other. You want to go drink some beer on a Thursday, like Thirsty Thursday, Thirsty Thursdays. Yeah, you want to play ping pong? Okay, not here, buddy. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Maybe we'll have a ping pong table, but that's only because we set up a competition, and then it was just left there. Like that's not what we're here to do. This is not a social club. This is not a country club. There are country clubs where you can go play ping pong and beer. Like you got a garage, like set one up, invite your buddies on a Friday night. We are here to be successful, and through success. It opens up all the beer and ping pong you want. Yeah, but not here. Like we're here to be great. We're here to win. We're here to take over. We're here. <laughs> not, we're not here to take part. Like, and guess what? As much as we talk about, oh, like this generation, there's so, like this generation, Like there are still dogs out there. They, you got to work a little harder to find them. That's okay. We go to 156 career fairs a year. I will find those fuckers. You know, yeah. yeah, yeah. Who who want who ready to go? And there are a lot of people. At 22, they come out of college and they were told this is what is valuable in a company is like pet insurance and like <laughs> net pods, you know, that's not us. Yep. Now, this is the sales side. These are the agents. We do have operations center in Phoenix, you go into, which is 80, 90 employees, like not agents, right? That office environment is going to be different. They're different. They're, first of all, they're wired different, meant, meant, like they're creatives, like it's very different. So I do want to, like, we do have that. It's just agents. You've chosen a career. There is no time for ping pong, Yeah. all right? And you know what there's time for? Cold calling. You know what there's time for? Getting better, understanding how to communicate your value rep, market research and understanding where market rents are, going on meetings, traveling to present deals in person, going to conferences, that's what there's time for. Because if you, especially at an early age, if you at 22 start doing that and you never give up and you keep going, I am a testament that by the time you're 40, and I know that sounds so old to these young youngsters, but it's not. And uh, it comes quick. And at 40, you could punch your ticket to any life you want. If you wanna spend the rest of your life playing ping pong and drinking beer, very probably unfulfilling life, but you can do that. If you want to spend the rest of your life, like let's talk about something real, like starting a charity, a foundation, and pursuing the rest of your life in philanthropy to find a cure, do something, and, and you know address a problem that is near and dear to your heart, it sets you up to do that too, and everything in between. All right, you want the big house, if you want to send your kids to private, like whatever it is, you want to spend the rest of your life focusing on your health and wellness, like it's all there for you, but it all gets set up by those first five, 10, 15 years in a career like brokerage where there is no ceiling. And that's why you choose it. That's why you choose it. You don't choose it because it's easy. You don't choose it because it's fun ripping 500 cold calls a week and basically getting told no on every call, if they answer. That's not why you choose it. You choose it because you want to live the life you promised yourself you were going to live when you were a kid. You want to live the life that every night you're laying in bed and you're going to sleep and you dream about living, whatever that life looks like to you, whether it's a material life, whether it's a metaphorical life, whether it's a conceptual, like, and you're willing to do whatever it takes and make however much sacrifice, however long it takes to get there. And there are some people at our company who are 27 years old, making 2 million bucks a year. That wasn't me. That was not me. I wasn't that good. I wasn't that smart. I worked harder or as hard, but- And it didn't, that didn't happen for me. And unfortunately there are people who are five years into their career and they're, you know, they're doing three, four, five years in, you're doing okay. I'm just saying like, but I know one thing for a fact about brokerage is that if you go hard the way we coach at Matthews and the way anyone should, and you do it and never stop, you will get to where you're going. Nobody can stop you from your destination. You could have a bad mentor. You could have a tough product type. You could have a terrible market, great financial crisis, and it will slow you down. It'll make the road windier and bumpier. It will affect the journey, but it does not ever, ever affect your ability to get to the destination, however you define that. And that, the tragedy of my job is I see so many people quit. The hardest part of my job truly is I see what they could be. I see the best version of themselves, but they don't see it. It's not that they don't believe in themselves. They just think it's too far away or they think it's unattainable. I'm not saying anyone lacks for confidence. I'm just saying like, they just don't see the path. And I know it's right there. It may be 15 years down the road, but I know they're going
1: to get there. When you say there's a 27-year-old that's making $2 bucks a year, and, and look, we've talked a lot about this. Anybody that's listened this far has already heard kind of your story, but what are the characteristics of somebody that's 27 years old that's making $2 bucks?
0: Yeah, generally, Generally speaking, the only commonality, the only consistent trait in the dozens and dozens of those that we do have and this is true about any successful agent at any company I've ever worked at or have had the ability to build a relationship is the discipline of working long hours, making lots of cool calls, presenting lots of proposals okay. over a long period of time. And a proposal is... It's a B O V. BOV. Yeah. yeah. You'll, you'll hear me use those interchangeably as bad habit, like proposal. I propose you sell your asset. I propose you hire me to lease it. I propose you engage me to provide a service to find you debt. Got it. A, a, the reason we call it a proposal is a BOV is more of an investment sale. We do more than that. We do debt origination, we do leasing, we do investment sales. We will do more than that very soon, whether it's property insurance or valuation or debt servicing, and that's more of a where we're heading. But so a proposal, we could just call it a BOV, broker opinion of value for the investment side. When an agent calls you up and you say, yeah, I'd be interested to see what it's worth and I'll consider selling. So the three things, if you said, Give me three traits of a broker. Like, tell me three things about a broker and I'll tell you if they're going to be successful. Now, assuming they keep doing it. Yeah. What, time, what time do they get in the office? How many calls do they make and how many proposals do they present? And if I only had one, it'd be presented proposals. That, that is the metric That's that matters the, metric. the most. That's the metric. Now, I present 103 proposals before I want to listing. Like that, you know, it's funny. My son struck out in baseball a couple of times the other day and it, just, it, was wreck- it was just eating his heart out. And I said, hey, listen, man, I get it, dude. It sucks. Like I have struck out in baseball. Hey, what if I told you I struck out 103 times in a row when I started my career? He's like, what? I said, yeah, like, you know, proposals. And he kind of knows the vernacular because he's been sitting at my dinner table for 12 years, you know, getting lucky. I mean, you know, they know all about cold calls, but I said, I presented a hundred. I said, you know what we call it? We call it a pitch. It's a lot like baseball. We call it a pitch. I call them at bats. Got to keep getting at bats, keep swinging the bat. Eventually going to make contact. Eventually you're going to hit it out of the park. I said, I struck out 103 times. And you know what I realized about 50, 60 in? We're not allowed to curse in my house. Like my kids don't curse. I don't curse in my house. I curse here. Hopefully they don't hear this. this. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. But I said, you just got to say, you know, F it. if I strike out, strike out, never accept it, never like it, but just move on. It's okay. You're going to keep getting better, but you can never keep stepping up into the batter's box. He's like, I don't want to play this game. I was like, no, you got to keep going. You got to keep stepping up. And so if one thing, it, it would be proposals presented. Now, if they presented a hundred, we, our market leaders who run the office, our managing directors who oversee that, and all the way up to me, like this is how involved I am in the, in the company, Chris. I will get on the phone with an agent and I will role play this with them to this day. I mean, we have 500 agents. I think 450 have my cell phone. So sometimes that sucks, but <laughs> you know, I can always not answer, but I, I get back to pretty much everyone. And I say, okay, you present a hundred proposals. I'm sure there's some free pizzas in there. That's okay. But like free pizzas are proposals that you maybe shouldn't have presented, but you're just trying to justify a reason to do it. Yeah. Um, okay, walk me through. First thing I'm going to say, go back to Matthews University, Matthews University Training Program. There is a 300 page manual. There are 105 modules, module 68, the pitch. Well, there's one module 64, is the preparation for the pitch, module 68 is the pitch. And there's a 21 step. Have you gone back and looked at that? Something as simple as you make an agenda for the meeting. You never go to BOV presentation without, hey, Chris, do you have an agenda for this meeting? If not, I presented one. Already you're like, damn, this guy's serious. Okay, Here's my agenda. Nobody does this, right? We do it. <laughs> yeah. So there, there you go. I just gave away one of our secrets. All our agents are going to be pissed. They're like, God, Damn you it. can't do this. It's hard balancing this whole new social media where it's like, <laughs> I got to give them, show them a little leg, but I can't give away the secrets. You got to come to Matthews if you want them. And so, uh, there's my plug, but <laughs> I want to come to Matthews. You can, you can. Dude, I invited you. Uh, I know yeah. I'm going to come. All right, good. So anyway, where's I with that? Proposals. And so I said, start there, but The one you have, your agenda, it's different. You have their agenda, but your agenda, just list the 21 steps and write out what you're like. Okay, step four, remember, don't sit across the table, sit to the side. Across is adversarial. I know we're doing podcasts now, but it'd be better if I'm sitting on your side because that means we're on the same team. We're in a huddle as opposed to negotiation. You don't want to negotiate with your client. You want to negotiate with the buyer. You want to be on the same, like just little things that I picked up on over the years. It's all there at Matthews University. Go back to your training, dog. Like, and then like, okay, I said, now I want you to do this for the next 10, do this exactly like this. And I, we're going to do this call again. You're presenting, you know, one and a half a week, two a week, two weeks. Great. I've never seen someone present two BOVs a week consistently and not do insanely well. And so what's that? Five, six, seven weeks. All right, let's call back 60 days from now. We're going to put this on my system, put it on the calendar and I'm going to see how it goes. And every time like, dude, it's so different. So different. I was like, that's it. It's a simple business brokerage. It's not an easy one. But it's a simple one. Did you draft that? We every single thing we drafted, and you just just got started. it all out of your listen, head. Listen, listen. You know what we did during COVID? It was it March seventeenth? We went home. March eighteenth, I called up like the top ten guys. I said, "We're not going to sit around our ass for the next however many months or years." I said, "I I want to revamp this training. We got to bring like Matthew's University. I got this whole vision, and we started banging them out. And at the time, I think it was about eighty lessons. I wrote about thirty of them. Dave wrote. Fifteen, twenty, 20. And then other people had four or five. A great quick story. There's a, uh, I would say, all right, you got two weeks, each of these and send them back to me. And they'd send them to me. And I'd say, Bill or Max or whoever was it, is this the best you can do? And they're like, I said, you get, come back to me in a week. I'd come back to me in a week. I was like, Max, man, Bill, Chad, this is the best you can do. And they go, so you got another week. Cause our training class was coming in June. So now it's like, early May. And they sent it back and all of them individually, they said, Kyle, this is the best I can do. I said, good, then maybe I'll read it this time. (laughs) That was a great lesson, Kennedy, Pola, Kennedy. And the story is do the absolute best you can do the first time because you can, like, there's so much more, there's so much better, whether it's an effort, whether it's a product, whether it's a service or whether it's a, whatever it is you're doing, you can do so much more than you think. I did this to the market leader. So to answer your question, we revamped our entire, wrote everything from scratch. It's You know, now it's 105 modules. It has, it's live training throughout the summer. So Matthews University, we'll have June 5th, we have 200 people showing up. Half of them are new agent hires. Another half are interns, usually rising seniors because that, that, that very much we like to become our recruiting class for the next year, like kind of like a law, like summer program. And we train them all. You know, some of the interns don't come back. That's fine. They go into real estate and they speak highly of us, I hope. But yeah, it's been amazing. And that was during COVID and we, I just, we just battled to do it. And then, you know, about five weeks in, I was like, we're getting back in the office. Then early May, May 4th, I drove from Nashville to Dallas and I opened the office personally. And then if I'm there, everyone's got to show up. So yeah. we got back to work right away. And I think that was one of the biggest reasons we flew out of that thing. And like, we were balling. And to this day, especially the big public companies, because they, you know, they got a lot of distractions. Hell yeah. Politically culturally, they got a lot of distractions right now. And I don't, we are, we don't, we have no distractions. We just work. And so they're still struggling to get people in the office. They're still maybe 50, 60% occupancy. It's a joke. We've been 101% since really June, 2020. And again, that Matthews mentality, if we hire the right guys and gals, they couldn't imagine, they they don't want to work from home. They did that for five weeks and they hated it.
1: Could you imagine being at the top of your game yeah. but saying, nah, I'm no, just gonna, not in I'm going to take this one from I home? I
0: am open-minded that there are professions, let's say coding, let's say maybe like an account where not driving 30 minutes in the office, like I creating the efficiencies, like let's assume you don't have a bunch of young kids. If you had got young kids in your house, it's not a good environment for being locked in, okay? But I am open-minded that there are multiple professions and jobs where that makes sense. Not in brokerage not in sales, and I always say, like, it's like a company's like a band. Like, everybody could play their instrument in a separate room, but it's only music when it's done together.
1: On that note, you started with one, I think one of the most impressive things about you, and, and about the company in general is, especially you, though, you've gone from broker to really CEO and like business leader. So you've said you don't do brokerage anymore. I do no brokerage. Y'all now
0: have 19 offices and counting. D- this is true. 19. We counted them all off this morning. I counted them off to the top of my head. Yes. Uh, Cause you were like, Hey, what do you got? 15? I was like uh, <sighs> yeah, six months ago, we might, but you know, yeah, every day there's a new office. So yes, 19 offices.
1: Just speak a little bit. Let's bring it home on like, what are y'all doing differently? How do you determine when to start a new office? Like, why is Matthews, and and you can hear it, why it's different, but you mentioned technology, shared services, support, and then you're, it seems like you're opening an office a month now. So what's like the vision? Where are we headed? What's all this look like? uh,
0: Okay. So there's a lot of questions in there. 55 questions. Yeah. Let me um, unpack that. So what is Matthews You do differently? What is what we call our value of representation? And a lot of our value to the broker is just passed through through an owner. So I use these interchangeably. It's really three things, okay? The first, and I'll I'll dive into each. The first is our shared service platform, okay? Okay. The second is our tech stack, our technology. Really, technology creates efficiency. So efficiency through technology. And the third is a culture. We've talked a lot about that. And I'll touch on that again, okay? And so the first is a shared service platform. So what does that mean? And I think I spoke about this briefly earlier. When I was at other companies, and it is my understanding this is still a thing, is a significant chunk of my day as an agent was spent on non-RPAs, non-revenue producing activities. I was I'm researching a property. Okay, that's fine. Our agents will still research if it's efficient. But I didn't have a button or a person like, hey, here's these five properties. Can you just get me the contact info? I'll cold call them. Clearly, I'll cold call them. Cold call is not a problem. I just need the numbers there was no one there for me to do that so i had to do that okay starting with that that's like the base but then i generate a bov and again there is part of brokerage that you never get away from which comps to use which ones are relevant how do, where do i price it if i'm underwriting it what are the market's 5 year unlevered irr expectations what are the assumptions can i defend them okay that's fine but what about building that model literally like for us it was like argus Just creating that model took two, three hours. And I was doing a proposal in half a week and I'm in shopping. I had to do that myself. Then it was the marketing of the BOV. It was the production of the InDesign file. Like I paid Adobe for my InDesign, you know, and I'm at like a big company, but this is just, this is how it was. So credit to them. You probably have pretty good margins, but it was like, okay, but this is just time. And my attitude and as a founder, I was like, dude, I mean, so the analogy I use is, Aaron Rodgers, best quarterback. Okay, that's not an analogy. That's a fact.
1: That's
0: <laughs> That's my guy. He's a great quarterback because he only spends time as a quarterback yeah. when he's not doing his darkness retreats. Like he's only like he's working out. He's throwing the spiral. He's watching film. He's getting with his coach. But he's not coordinating the halftime meals. He's not negotiating room blocks for the away game hotels. He's not like understanding payroll services for all the security like... He's just a quarterback and I looked at myself like I'm a player, I'm on the field, I'm an athlete for brokerage and I'm doing all this work that like, it's a distraction. And so at Matthews, 90% of that is gone. So at Matthews, yes, a lot of our guys will still research numbers, but like if there's just a number, you like click a button, we have a data research department. So like both onshore and offshore, they'll find the number and they'll kick it back to you. Okay, cool. That saves me four minutes. Great. Well, almost four minutes. That's another cool call. How about like the BOV production? If it's a larger deal, we have 60, 70 people in Phoenix that like they click a button in the system and I'll talk about the system Atlas in a second where it sends a message to say, hey, BOV requested, this is the agent. It's a 15 unit industrial deal in Fort Worth and BOV is due in 10 days or seven days or four days and like different urgency levels. You're talking dirty to me. Yeah. 15 units in Fort Worth. Yeah. So all of a sudden they start creating the whole wireframe. They're already starting on the, on the, the market overview and the submarket overview, they're already doing the ground area photography through our network. They're already doing everything. The broker's just kind of identifying, okay, here, are the, it's all done in the system. So the broker just drops comps in the system. He says, start pricing here. We have analysts like, Hey, maybe not nah, do I, yeah, I'll do a 10 year cash flow model. Like not only do they not have to do it themselves, they don't have to manage these people. They're professionally managed. They're employees at Matthews. It's done. It's expensive for us. So our margins are less than any one deal, but our agents do so many more deals. That's why our Matthews agents, why the young agents Matthews are moving up the ranks a lot faster than any other company. That's why we put more new agents into the industry than probably ever the company combined over the last five years. I don't know that, but I would probably bet my money on that. Or the OM, you earn the listing. You're awarded the listing. And you get, you're like, hey, I need an OM. That's done for you, right? It's all these, there's transaction managers. Like It allows them just to keep, making calls and keep going on meetings and keep presenting proposals and keep traveling to see clients, keep negotiating their deals so they do more deals. Or I'd like to think, but they take half that time and they, they go work out and go hang with their buddies, but like half the time they apply back, it's still a net plus to us. It's kind of like, it's not Costco, but it's like Costco's like, look, we'll make less money on any one bottle of water, but we'll sell way more water, right? right? And so the shared service platform, it allows them to generate more business, Number one. Number two, it saves them time having to do it. Number three, it saves them time having to manage people. I had to manage people at the companies I was at. Let me ask you, when you hire your first employee and what's your maternity policy, what happens if they're driving to take a photo of a building that you're pitching on and they get in a car accident? That These are real things. Okay. What happens? Oh, you got to review them. You got to onboard them. You got to create the job description. It's all you, and it's all distractions, none of which are revenue-producing activities. Yep, all of which I had to do at both companies I was at, and if I had to guess, ninety percent of brokers are still doing. Then the last part, I had to pay for it. That was the hard part because then you have to decide, like, should I pay to send this out via Constant Contact, one hundred fifty bucks, or could I just like call buyers locally? And that affects owners. That affects the service you're providing because now you're. You're saying, can I get away with selling this deal without having to spend all this capital on it? Well, the owner, respectfully, I'm sure they want you to make more money, but they're like, look, you need to provide me the best service possible. You need, which ultimately is exposure. Okay. Amongst many things. But the biggest thing is you're, you're effectively showing up for a marketing assignment and your job is to expose the asset and defend the sunshines and negotiate and all those things, but get exposure. And now you're deciding if you really want to use all the tools and resources that are available for a broker because you got to pay for them. That's taken out of the decision-making process. At Matthews is just there. Yeah. Bang. So that's the first is a shared service platform. And all of those, let me real quick, features, 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 benefit, benefit to the owner. When you hire a Matthews agent, they have more time to call buyers. They have a broader reach and exposure. They can provide you a better service because they have more time to provide the service, which is brokerage. Right. And so let's say all brokers are the same, they all work the same amount of time. They all make, but If one broker has 90% of his time to go out and find you that buyer who's going to pay the most aggressive price or find you the deal that you're really looking for for your 1031 and the other broker has 60% of their time, over a long enough period of time, over enough brokers and over enough deals, the company that provides that is likely, over time, going to provide a better service. The second is the technology, and I'll say this is a big one. The biggest part about it is the database. But first I'll touch on, we have investor predictor. So any buyer that comes to our website, we cookie, we track their computer. This is a little above my pay grade. We have like a whole software development team at Matthews and, you know, some CIA shit. But uh, <laughs> yeah. no, no, no. So you go to our website. First, they, your company has, your computer has ISP. We start, okay, it's connected to your profile. I could go in at any time, see like, okay, he's looked at he's looked at industrial deals in these three markets, right? That's proactive. But what if I told you when I list an industrial deal, in Phoenix, it provides me investor predictor. Here are the likely buyers. In addition to people who own near the area, in addition to the email blast, in addition to going on a costar and seeing who bought buildings similar to it, here is a list of people based on digital body language, digital activity. Here's a list. So if I'm going to make a hundred random calls to buyers, why not this one? And so it increased the probability of sourcing buyers, the needs and leads marketplace, like our agents. And again, I'm not saying these are unique to Matthews. I think some are, some aren't. Needs and leads. It's, I'm talking to you, I'm an agent. You said, hey, I'm really looking for industrial 10 to 20 million in these 10 states. Okay, great. I'm an agent, let's say in Nashville, I'm only working in Tennessee. I can't track it, but I, I create this needs and leads in our marketplace. Anytime any deal hits the system in Matthews, it pushes it to me and it pushes it to the listing agent. The listing agent is gonna receive, hey, Kyle Matthews, agent out of Nashville, has a buyer with a need that matches your lead and vice versa. And you could put listed deals, you could even put unlisted deals. You could say, hey, I have an off-market deal, it's an industrial deal, it's X amount of square feet, X amount of million, and it's in this market. And it pushes it to the buyer's agent who says, hey, there is a deal, it's an off-market deal put in the system by an agent in our Phoenix office that matches your need for Chris Powers. And so it just increases probabilities of hitting that. Click to sale system. When I was an agent and I would send uh, broker emails out or sorry, e-, e-, e blast, like whether it's 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 people. I hope they got it. I had no idea. I hope they called me. I'd call them if they're a kind of a logical buyer, but there's no way to see on the other side what was happening digitally, right? Our technology embedded within our system is you get real time alerts. So if I send out an e blast and it's a multifamily asset, I'm the listing agent, I get notified within, I think it's like 31 seconds of someone opening clicking, downloading, depending on how you set your filters. I only want to see who downloads it. And in the first couple hours, I might get 100, 200, 300 leads that says like, hey, Joe Smith at Smith Multifamily Ownership Company is looking at your deal. It has all their contact. And I call and I say, hey, Joe, it's Kyle Matthews. Hey, listen, I just sent you a deal. I think you might be looking at, I love this deal. And I think it's perfect for you. And here's why. It gives me the ability to overcome their objections in real time. It's like walking onto a car lot what happens? The sales guy comes out and says, Hey, I see you looking at this car. I like this car. You want to test drive it? It's pretty good. And then I'm like, no, it's too expensive. Like, no, 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 no. Actually it's way less expensive. You think I got this incredible, just for you. I got this incredible, take it off the lot now financing deal. Just come on inside. Let's sit down. I'm going to walk you through the financing zero APR for the first 18 months, (laughs) you know? And, and again, like, so it just gives us the opportunity to overcome those objections. Objections are like cement. you got to get to them before they settle. It's hard to crack it after that. And then the biggest thing, and the biggest thing, and the biggest thing, the size of Atlas, our database, right? Atlas was the Titan God who held the world on his shoulders, right? Atlas, this is, you hold, like, it holds our business up on its shoulders. This is the biggest, one of the biggest misconceptions about brokerage. Owners like yourself, you think, Am I in this database? Oh, yeah, 100%. Oh, right. <laughs> uh, I man, if you're not, we were, <laughs> like, I, I should quit my job. We suck. I'm out. Oh, 100%. I mean, we have a million people. North of a million people. Wow. All right. Here's what's up. Most owners think that companies are competition, these databases, and they don't. They don't. You say, okay, like, what are the biggest companies? Name them. JLL, CB? Nah. Cushman. Nope. Nope. Colliers. Nope. Marcus does.
1: Nope. Oh, no, they make their agents do it. Because you talk to any new agent at Marcus and like, what do you do in the first year? like, got to build my database, but it's their proprietary one. Yeah. Okay.
0: So the bigger companies. You know what I mean? You do build- I know what I, you mean? I live, the, <laughs> come on dog, I live that life. Are you, do I know what you mean? <laughs> oh. All right, listen, some of these companies, the big publicly traded, they may have a database, but it's all like giant institutional owners. Yeah. It's like in the industrial, it's three, 400 biggest industrial owners. Or if it's like the DFW market, it's the 30, 40 biggest owners. Like, you know how I know this? Cause I got boys at all these companies. And I'm like, yo, you know, when you get a listing, like, what do you do? He's like, yeah, we send it to our Excel list. I was like, you don't have a database. He's like, there kind of is, but nobody uses it. Nobody curates the data. Nobody puts it in. And he's like, there is no private client information. None. And that's why they can't, they struggle to Source 1031 buyers. But like now, if you have a $70 million asset, industrial deal in Dallas, multifamily deal in LA, retail deal in Georgia, how many buyers really are there? It's like 50, 60 buyers. And it's the same buyers. You know who they are. Like maybe every now and then some new fund shows up, right? But again, like, it's out there on the, like, you're gonna see the deal. But who pushes value for the five, the 10, the 15 product? It's those 1031s, it's those private clients. They don't have anything. You mentioned Marcus, so again, it's been a decade since I've been there, so I, you know, I have to qualify the saying. things that may have changed. If they haven't, it's that I had my database. When I earned a listing, it went out to my, and I I was like, I got a big database. I got like 20,000 people, right? I had eight, nine years databasing me the whole time, every morning five researches a day, keep the doctor away. So like every morning I got it at six and from six to seven, I researched five new contacts. All right, this is all me. It was, it was tough. It was like 20,000. I was like, oh, I got 20,000 person database. Now at Matthews, your first day, million north of America. And everybody has access to it. Everyone has access to it now. There's all types of rules like, <laughs> there's protections there's locks the biggest is segmentation like you're not going to get you know, an apartment building in New York City because you've never signed up like there's you know you have form capturing you could say hey this is what i'm looking for but my point is if ultimately i'm an agent i'm interviewing for an assignment and you're like hey how do you expose this asset look at this thing yes i know you know i research every owner in dfw i know who they are i'm going to cold call them of course of course they're going to get it. and you know what there's a 60 70% chance that's the buyer stand on the rooftop of the deal you listed 60, 70% chance the buyer owns a building that you can see. That's like an old school rule of brokerage. I still think that's true. But the 20, the 30, 40% of buyers that are new, it's their first time buying into a market, it's the California 1031 exchange bar. How are you gonna the to, best buyer that how, ever was? They're the best. But how are you gonna source them? At every other company, it's uh, loopnet, it's Crexy, it's it's my internal broker referral network. You know, it's like, I'm gonna put it in our insider system and, and my agent, the agents at the company in California, they're gonna take your deal, which probably has. A lot of objections, you have big rents, you have full occupancy. It's like, it's uh, is no upside, all downside, right? And I have to overcome those objections. You're gonna rely on an agent six states away who probably doesn't even do their product to be the first person to introduce your product to that magical buyer? That's a bad decision. I want my agent to introduce it. I want my agent to, you know why? Because they're the most qualified. They know the asset the best, they know the market rent's the best, they know what the objections they've had time to prepare. And it increases the probability that when that buyer receives a deal, they're not going to be like, delete, not interested, nah, I don't like this. And so, this the size of this database is an insane listing or earning of a listing tool because you get to go to an owner and say, like, if we're just here to talk about marketing and reach, like, here's what I say. I call it. You remember the Pepsi Challenge? Like, it's like, all right, let's drink the two sodas. You tell me. It's like I always say, Pepsi Challenge it. I tell the agents, to tell the owner to come into the Matthew's office, sit at your desk, and have access to this thing for a second and understand the power at your fingertips and then, and just say, hey, if I hire you, are you able to send this deal to every potential buyer that anyone's ever spoken with? And you could look them in the eye and say, yes. Now go to another competitor and say, another broker shop and say, hey, sit down at their desk, say, hey, if I hire you, I know you're gonna send it to everyone you've talked to and everyone you've researched, but can you send this directly to everyone in the market who's ever interacted with anyone at your company? They'd be like, what are you talking about? No, what, what, why, how? It's like, okay. And then here's the second part of that, Chris. Show up at six 30 in the morning at a Matthew's office. Everyone will be there suited and booted, ripping, ready to go. Show up at any Matthew's office. Now show up at a competitor's office at seven 30 in the morning. Doors are fucking locked. (laughs) No one's there. And that's the third part. See how I tie that together? Culture, culture. We talked about a lot of culture about keeping it fun. Okay. No, I'm talking the culture of work, work ethic.
1: But I thought work-life balance and like- Yeah, you, and, you and, want to get and, to this question. And all the colleges yeah. are telling their kids, you know, you need to work hard and so, not too hard though. So
0: I have a theory on the work- I'm just like, laying this softball yeah, right out yeah, here for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite answer. This is where Zach wants me to say, go to my social media and you could see for yourself. I know, I retweeted uh, it. Thank you for that. I don't think it's that colleges or professors, some do, sure spouses and promotes work-life balance. Like don't work that hard. All right. I think what it was, was when we were growing up, half the room was like, I need to be successful. And I I want to go take over the world. Like maybe that's us. Okay. And the other half didn't. And that's okay. Cause again, God makes everyone different. But I think 20, 30, 40 years ago, I think the other half that's like, Hey, I just want to get a job. I just want to make a little money. And I just want to, and which again, there's no judgment. It's just different. It's different. I think back then they just were quiet and they were like, Hey, they looked at guys like you and I was like, Those guys are crazy. Why would they want that? I don't want that. And we were like, That's cool. You do you. And they just said, and you do you. And we go our separate ways in life in the sense we choose different paths. I think the issue now in our culture, in our society, is that other half of the room is so loud. And not only do they say, Hey, I don't agree with that life of like eighty hours a week, like, that's miserable. You work to live you live to work. Fine. I- I have things about your choices that I could say, but like I'm kind of like live and let live. Like you live your life, I live mine. But nowadays, that other 50%, they just scream at you and they're like, you're in it. This is bad. And they just drip with judgment and they just can't stand you for it. And I think because internally it makes them feel guilty. It makes them feel bad that they're not choosing that because they know deep down that if they were willing over a long period of time to make that sacrifice and put The side, the thirsty Thursdays, like, okay, (laughs) no, put to the side all the, the hobbies and the social activities that that's what you really give up. From 22 to 35, I worked nonstop. That's all I did. Was it? I got married. I had three kids. Now I got four, three kids. I went on tons of vacations. I coached my kids sports. So it wasn't all that I did. But what did I sacrifice? I did not sacrifice my life. I did not sacrifice my marriage. I did not sacrifice my kids, my time with my kids. You know what I sacrificed? Some workouts. Got a little soft around the belly. I'm still working on that. <laughs> I sacrificed Saturdays or for the boys. I sacrificed hobbies and things that you like to do, but you really don't need to do. So the rest of my life, I can do those whenever and wherever I want, if that's what I want to do, which right now, that's not what I want to do. I want to keep spending time with my family and I want to keep kicking ass.
1: And all the people that didn't sacrifice and did Thirsty Thursdays forever are now 35 it's and no longer and cool to be social off. all the time. And they're like, fuck, and they're, now I got to get started.
0: But yeah. And then that's or they don't, And that's demoralizing. Or, yeah. And I, I'm generalizing here, which I really yeah. don't like to do. But now they're pissed and they're angry and they're just, they're screaming at us. I hear you. Okay. Now, yeah, I did a talk. It was the University of Alabama. And by the way, I've given this speech like a thousand times at Matthews. Like the Matthews guys rolled their eyes. Like, oh, here we go. Work-life balance. I've heard this one. But uh, now that I have social media... You know, it was a pretty active post. is like someone. is a video where I was talking about a conversation. I there was a reporter in L.A. when I was living out in L.A. I think it was L.A. Business Journal. We wanted to come and talk about Matthews. We had started a couple of years. We're growing quick, and I was telling her, "My house like, get in the office at five forty-five. I stayed till seven seven thirty. I have at the time, you know, probably two kids. I coached their sports." And she's like, "Oh my god! Like, when do you have time for work-life balance? Like, you're doing all this at the company, and then you got the kids. Like, when do you have time for you? Like, work-life balance?" And I was like, "Well," And I'm just rolling. I'm just making stuff up, right? And I'm like, (laughs) like this is not something I practiced. And I said, well, like work life balance or work day balance. And I was like, I think you're talking about like work day balance. And right now, I don't have any. And I said, but work life balance, I'll have way better balance than you do. And like I have like no filter. And she's like, I said, what do you mean? I said, well, work day balance. Certainly, right now, like I wake up, I go to work, I go home, I put my kids to bed, talk to my wife, go to sleep, rinse, wash, repeat. Weekends. I coach my kids. I play with my kids. And if it's nap time, I go to the office. Like, yeah, it's brutal. It's hard. Spartan lifestyle, right? <laughs> All time, train for war. So, <laughs> But I'm doing this so one day, if God willing, and the creek doesn't rise, like I will have the luxury of not ever having to work again at a young age. And that's my hope. I don't like hope. That's my strategy. My eh, strategy is good. That's what I know to be true. I know that if I do this, it will work out. And I might be an idiot. And maybe I'm wrong. I don't think so. So that's my choice. And I said, So right now, yes, your day is more balanced. Like you work eight hours a day, right? So, yeah. I said, Then you, you know, you, what do you do for obvious? Like, oh, I, you know, I go to yoga and I spend time. I said, No, that that's what I figured. I said, So right now, yes, I work more than you. But I said, Work life balance is a myth. And I said, I'll Tell you why. Because from 22 to 32, I'll work eight hours a week. From 32 to 35, 37, I think I was, I'm trying to do the math here. Yeah. Like, I'll work 60. And from 37 to 42, I'll work 20 and then at 42, I'm done. And so add that up like the hours per year, 50 work weeks in a year. And then for you, take 40 hours a week times 50 weeks a year is 2000 hours times 40 years. Cause you'll probably have to work that long unless your parents give you a bunch of money, which I ain't getting that, you know? So yeah, <laughs> that's, um, that's 80,000 hours. And then when I added up mine, I did, I had a whiteboard cause I always have a whiteboard cause the whiteboards are awesome. And uh-huh. I, mine was like 68,000. And I said, so you're going to work more than me. It sounds like you don't have work-life balance. I do. And she wasn't happy about that. But it kind of taught me, is like, you know, I just always try and break things down to like the facts. I don't like to state opinions as facts. So I was just like, here are the facts. It convinced me otherwise. She's like, well, I'm, I'm, I can't. And I was like, there you go. And it just kind of like, I've always shared that story. And I share that story at the University of Alabama, at the real estate school. I was giving a talk to about a month ago. And yeah, look, it's delayed gratification. Yep. You know, the first sign of maturity in kids is delayed gratification. You go to a three-year-old and you say, hey, you could have a cookie today or two tomorrow. And they'll always choose one today. And then they'll ask for one tomorrow. (laughs) Because they're three. And they'll probably get it. You go to a five-year-old and you say, you could have one today and two tomorrow. I have four kids. Two of my kids would have taken the one and two of my kids would have taken the one tomorrow. And they did kind of, but by seven, they almost all take the two tomorrow because they're maturing and they're thinking, wait a minute, if I just sacrifice a little today, if I sacrifice this cookie, which I want so bad right now, tomorrow I get two? I can do that. That's one day. Now, when it comes to your career and professional success, it's a much longer sacrifice, but there's a lot more cookies at the end. Yeah. And so that's what I tell these guys and gals when they start at Matthews, I share with anyone who's willing to listen, like, God willing, life is long actually. And you got to plan for that. You know, there's tragedies that, that, that happen every day and they're terrible. Okay. Put that to the side. But what if you do live 80, 90, a hundred years old? Like, what if, like, especially everyday people are more, better access to health or like awareness about food and da, da, da. Like, what if 50, 60, 70, like you still are in great shape. You could still do a lot of things. You're not sitting in a chair watching like Fox news the rest of your life. Like, you know, it's like, no, you actually could do things. Like, what if you're still working, man? Like that sucks. And you're working, but you're not really building wealth. Cause Things are always expensive. They're getting more expensive by the day, like inflation. I know CPA was down to five, thank God. <laughs> but the core CPI is still, you know, still hanging in there. But, uh, yeah. But my point is, it's like, what are you really giving up in your 20s and even your early 30s? Like, I, you can find the, your life partner and get married. You can have children and be an involved mother and father. You can do these things. What you sacrifice, you sacrifice some workouts, certainly. You sacrifice like your, your time, like socializing. But those things fade. Those are like hobbies and activities. Like, And then for the, so the rest of your life, if you make those sacrifices up front you delay the gratification, the amount of socializing, the amount of working out, the amount of whatever you want in life, and maybe it's a material thing. Maybe it's, you know, boats and cars and like, hey, to each their own. That's not my scene, but God bless, man. Whatever brings you happiness. I got a rule. Do whatever makes you happy as long as it's not pissing anyone else off. If that's what makes you happy, that's awesome, man. That's yeah. awesome. But it has to come from somewhere. And the thing with... Sacrifice is much like wealthy compounds in the sense like if you can do it earlier, it will build and build and build and build. And I think it's not so much that they're being encouraged by the establishment, the institution, certainly there are those professors, but there are always those professors, right? It's more that like the other side of the room, the room that doesn't want to do that through social media is seeing the benefits of those who did and it's just getting thrown in their face every day and they're pissed off and they're angry. And what do people do? They very rarely reflect internally and say, well, what choices did I make in my life that led me to this place where I'm not necessarily living the life I want, but instead now they're projecting it out and it's becoming part of the culture where if you say, hey, if I go to a 22 years about to graduate, hey, what do you want? If he or she went to their fellow classmates, like, you know what? I want to be super successful. I want to make a ton of money. I want to retire young and just do all the things I want in life. They're like, oh my God, that's terrible. Like, and it's like, no, that's just what that person wants. They're not judging you, like, but it's just for whatever reason. So in my little soapbox that I stand on, I just battle that message a little bit. And that's my thoughts on work-life balance.
1: I love that thought on work-life balance. And that's why I wanted to hit on it. All right, we've been going for a while. Let's bring it home on just a little bit about what you're seeing in the market. What are you telling agents? What are you actually seeing? You actually think maybe the worst of it might be past us?
0: Well, let me clarify it speaking from a brokerage standpoint with velocity declines. Okay. And I'll tell you, so I'll tell you why, is velocity declines for a brokerage company or an individual agent, you want all your clients to make money at all times. It's always better when they do, okay? But in terms of your market, it's really the market conditions for transactions. And what happened was last year when Powell and the Fed went on that, you know, was it nine raises in 12 months? And it went from zero to four and a quarter, four and a half. Mm. And the 10 year went from 130 in February to 420 in October. I mean, think about that. In eight months, it went up almost 300 basis points. I'm going to use generic numbers here. Let's say February last year, like coming out of 2021, which is the most insane year ever, heading into 2022, big pipelines, everyone's just feeling good about themselves. Let's say the average cap rate across all product types is a five, and the average cost of capital debt was a three and a half. You follow just like real simple yeah. one hundred and fifty basis points. With amortization, your debt constant is close to your cost of cap is close to your yield the cap rate that you're buying in. So you know, where the four, five, six is, that's kind of a stabilized cash and cash. That's fine. I'm just using this as a base. When debt rises, when the cost of borrowing rises three hundred basis point, three percent from three and a half to six six and a half on average. But your cap rate' still at five, nothing pencils. And transactions, once that 1031, like kind of pig and the snake is swallowed, like it's gone. And you see velocity crash down. I think December was down 77%, or that was no, uh, November. I mean, that's significant. And so what we're seeing now, and this is why I think the worst is over from a transaction velocity standpoint, is we are seeing massive cap rate movement. It is happening. You know, September, October, we hadn't seen it yet. There still was some kind of crazy sales, but November, December, Jan- now you're seeing them. You're like, damn, that deal traded like, a high six would have traded mid five last year. Like, dude, that was out of seven. You're starting to see sevens. I was like, there's a seven? I haven't seen that since like 2015. <laughs> like, let's go, baby. Come on. Like, especially buyers, you know, it's like, oh, I've been waiting around forever. It's like, all right, well, your cost of borrowing has gone up. Your cost of LP money has gone up. It's all relative. But yeah, yeah, yeah. You make your money on the buy and the market you're buying in, all
1: right? Right.
0: But, but we're seeing cap rate movement, but we've also seen debt costs, you know, kind of stabilize. Like, and come down a little bit. I mean, it peaked was October 24th. 10-year was at 420. Today, it's 340, 350. I didn't check today. It's kind of moving around a little bit, but that's 60, 70 basis points. I think debt's 25, 50 bps cheaper than it was. There's less lenders in the market today, but there's still some lenders. So that's why it's so important to have, we have embedded capital markets agents in our company, which is so important if you're an investment sale guy. So now we're seeing cap rates moving up, we're seeing debt stabilize, even come down a little bit. We're getting a little closer to what I call market equilibrium, where cap rates on average are 150 bips higher than debt. If debt is six and a half, I know this sounds crazy, cap rates gotta get to eight. They gotta go from five to eight, but they're moving. They're at six, six and a quarter, they're they're marching. And as long as they will keep marching up, because buyers are undefeated, they've never lost this battle. All sellers either don't sell, or the ones that have a real motivation, They always have to find religion and sell. So I have to ask you one question. Yeah. For the folks right now,
1: you can go on, and a lot of the single tenant stuff, Dollar Generals, whatever, still price at five and a quarter. They're not selling. And, but if, okay, so that has finally kind of washed out. Yeah, it's washing out. Okay. So those are just brokers that are willing to take listings at five and a quarter.
0: And Yeah, yeah, bad brokers. Historically, they haven't been through a difficult market. Even guys who started, really 2011, COVID was like a stop start. It does. It wasn't even like a real recession for brokers. Just there were no deals for 90 days and it came back like wildfire. So you have brokers in the business 10 years, 12 years almost making millions, millions, millions. They have never been in a market like this and they're learning hard lessons. And they probably have big overhead too at the household. Yeah, I think most of their overhead, it sounds weird, is assets they've purchased. They, they're they super liquid. They make all this cash. And as soon as they get the cash, they go buy, buy real estate and they become a liquid but they have assets, but now, you know, the value of those assets are going down. I, I think they're okay. I can't speak for everyone. I can speak for agents at Matthews. Like it's not part of Matthews university, like uh, for wealth management, but we certainly communicate, like be conservative, be safe, stay liquid. We always recommend you have 24 months of, of your, whatever your net is saved up in cash or cash equivalent Buy real estate, fund your 401k, do all those things. Uh, we all, we tell brokers, one of the best ways to earn business is If your client's raising money, put some money in as an LP, like it gives you a, good shot of winning the business, you know, yeah. it's a product you specialize in, they appreciate it. Yep. Anyway, that regardless, those are agents. And I don't mean this disparage. Like they just haven't had to be, they're just not, they're not battle season vets yet. Yeah. The vets aren't doing it. Yeah. They'll just not take the listing. They'll have it come back to them on the rebound and lower price. Well, they'll just move on to higher probabilities. Is probability brokerage.
1: I will tell you as a principal right now, which is, it's been a flip for a long time you know, everybody wants the off-market deal, the true off-market, no offense, but no brokers involved. I just wanna talk directly too. Mm-hmm. Now in this market, it's totally changed. If a broker's bringing a deal out and they're a good broker, they've already brought they've, the seller they've down they've to already,
0: earth. Listen, bad markets, uh, really hard transaction markets, reset broker value. Correct. At the time. I, so there are so many developers. That we had done a lot of business, but like, first of all, it starts with fee compression. Your fees go from three to two to one on like a chunkier, let's call it just a commodity, like a net lease, right? Yeah. And then eventually they're like, dude, everybody knows what product I got. Like, they could just reach out. Like, I don't even need to list this. And in a market like 21, I will always battle, say, a broker will get you a better price. And even if they don't, they'll save you time. Like, I always say, okay, what's the fee you're going to pay? It's 50 grand, 70 grand, 100 grand. How much is your time worth? How much aggravation? Like, I'm always going to battle, right? I believe in what we're doing. But in today's, like, we have developers reaching out, like, hey, like, I need someone to help. Like, please, who's your best broker? I need. And I was like, two years ago, this product was flying. So, again, you never wish, you never root for recessions. Like, dude, it's tough. Like, we're battling. work. Like, I was equated to, like, a fight. Like, we are taking punches, but we're landing punches. You know, we're landing. But, you know, we got a little swelling under our left eye. My rib hurts. Like, when I come out of this, I'm going to take a couple weeks vacation, no doubt. But, no, we're doing well. The bigger, the public companies, they all got a report. So I know what they do and they're getting smoked right now. Yeah. And the boutiques are 12 months from now, there will be boutiques that you know of, that I know of that will not be in existence. And we're already seeing it. I've already heard of in the last 90 days, three boutique companies that didn't pay their brokers on closing. So like, hey, mm. give me a couple months. We're just a little tight. And I'll tell you why that is. Gets back to Matthew's growth is like in a good market, every boutique makes money. Yeah. And then what does the owner do? They sweep that cash. Yeah. They're like, okay, like, what is my payroll? It's uh, you know, it's 500 grand. All right, great. I'll leave 500 grand for the next 12 months. But it made 2 million. Like, okay, I'm gonna take that million and, half and go buy real estate. I'm going to go, uh, buy that big home. I'm fund my kids 529, like good things. I'm going to give it to charity. Awesome things. But then when the market turns, they don't have a lot of cash in there. And then they start bleeding. What are you going to do? You're going to do a capital call you're going to go to your investors and say, hey, fund this business? And they're like, where'd the money go? You're going to go to your brokers say, hey, I need a lower split. That ain't happening. No, no. way. Not in a down so market. You know, you know what they do? They start pulling massive resources. They start letting marketing people go and transaction management, analysts. And you see every public company who has to announce, they've all publicly said, hey, we're cutting 400 million in overhead. And it's like, that's what you, those are human beings. Like, where did all the money go? You guys made so much money over the last couple of years. Where'd it go? shareholders. Okay, fine. That's the public world. Okay. What about the boutiques? They swept it yeah. and now they're getting smashed and they're about to break. They're about to tap out. No moss. Like they don't want any more of this. And we get those phone calls. All right, buddy. Thanks for having me. This was fun. This is great. Thanks yeah. for coming on. No, thanks. I don't do a lot of these. I think I got to do more is what they tell me, but now you do a great job. No, it's, it's good. Well, you know, it's I'm heat. a fan. Likewise, buddy. And I want to do a deal with y'all. Yeah. You could sell a deal through us anytime. All right. Right now, let's go grab lunch. We'll talk about what deal you want to sell. All right. All right.
1: I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com.